Digital Gonzo, episode 59, dated Thursday the 1st of March 2012. The Harry Potter Movie Reviews, Year 6, The Half-Blood Prince. You are, of course, wondering why I brought you here tonight. Actually, sir, after all these years, I just sort of go with it. Take my arm. Harry, I'd like you to meet Professor Horace Slughorn. What you see before you is a curious little potion. It does cause powerful infatuation or obsession. I'm in love with her. All right, fine, you're in love with her. Have you ever actually met her? Hmm. Can you introduce me? This year, the past holds a dark secret. What you are looking at are memories. This is the most important memory I've collected. Now get out of here at once! It is also a lie. And only he, you're the chosen one, Harry, can unlock the truth. Hey, she's only interested in you because she thinks you're the chosen one. But I am the chosen one. Okay, sorry. Um, kidding. From Warner Brothers Pictures. Without this memory, we leave the fate of our world to chance. Must not fail. You need us, Harry. Fight back, you coward! The darkness is descending on Harry's world in a way that will not now be abated until the conclusion of the series. The depths of Tom Riddle's terrible actions begin to make themselves known, and an unhappy event changes Hogwarts forever, as we return for the sixth of eight podcasts. Half-Blood Prince was the first Potter film to be released, following the publication of the final book, and with it, all of the secrets. The filmmakers now knew the score on absolutely everything that was ultimately of importance to the series, and what about it was superficial. It is in the less than humble opinion of this reviewer that the new focus kicked the final three pictures into another level entirely of conveying these stories to us, the audience. So we begin the first part of the Horcrux trilogy. Returning to her post from Gonzo Planet, we have Sharon Shaw. Hello. Back for a final visit, Babbity Rabbity himself, Mr. James Batchelor of Gameburst and MCV. Hello. And for our Defence Against the Dark Arts teacher this week, a long-time friend of the show and the voice box of the truly wonderful Extra Credit series now playing on Penny Arcade TV, Mr. Daniel Floyd. Hello there. what's happening to the wizarding world everything's gathered in shadows and you immediately notice the tonal change in the film everything in Half-Blood Prince is is done almost in charcoal if that makes any sense it's almost there's a lot of brown a lot of browny yellow it, it's almost like an alien film it, to that it's, it's like it's like that point where video games they thought that to make it look more realistic you had to make it look more brown Brown. So we had lots of very, Not very brown. brown games. And this is a very, very brown film. It's almost sepia, you know, it's, at, at parts. It, le- it leeches the colour out. Uh, mm. For the um, 
the f- final sequences from the cave onwards, Harry's wearing a red sports top, but you almost wouldn't know it because mm. the colour's been, you know, removed. They, they remove the other colours and they put in a lot of black. Like, the, the sky is impossibly black. It's, yeah, it's, it, it, it's so much so that you, I often look at the look at it, you know, towards the later stars of the uh, part of the film, and you see the black sky behind them, and you honestly think it's a wall that's been painted and put there. You know, like when they do night, um, they do night footage, and they build like a set with big black walls around them, and then they just wait for it to be night over the top, so that in the background it's just black. It looks like that. I, it's, it's such a strange, but it, but it suits the tone of the film. It's indicative of the gathering storm. Yes. We spend a lot of time at Hogwarts kind of having sort of the standard kind of Hogwarts fun, but having kind of that tone and just that darkness and that color kind of leached out of it kind of maintains a little bit of that foreboding, like you said, the coming coming storm, so that when we do finally get to the major events at the end leading on into the last two films, it doesn't feel like a huge shift coming out of nowhere. It's We're kind of, we knew it was coming. Yeah, well, with the actors as well, everybody looks drained, which, considering what, not necessarily what has already happened, although obviously in the case of the people who were actually at uh, the Ministry when everything went down at the end of Phoenix, that mm. that would apply. But everybody else at Hogwarts, what's to come, is going to make them feel like that. So that sort of vaguely sickly skin tone that everybody seems to have does seem very appropriate. Particularly Malfoy, obviously. Yes, Oh yes, I mentioned that actually. He looks he's ill. So he looks dead. There's a yes. point where he's he's walking down the corridor, um, and it's very very dark around him, and you've just got this startling white hair, mm. and and um, he's wearing uh, his black clothes, which obviously um, makes it look even more pronounced. But he just the, the pallor on him is just so acute. You can't not feel for him. There are points where his face matches his hair, mm. and they just blur into one. One thing I didn't pick up until I watched it this time, knowing I was coming on Gonzo, the Death Eaters obviously smash into a shop and pull someone out. That's Ollivander. Yes. Getting kidnapped for his role in Deathly Hallows. I never yeah. picked up on that. The lack of the Dursleys means a lack of explanation as to why Harry had to stay there. Because this is the point where a Dumbledore goes to the Dursleys to pick up Harry before they go to find um, Slughorn and explains why he has to stay here because of the blood and so forth. And I believe you covered that in the last episode. Mm. But this is the point in the books where it's actually explicitly com- you know, explained. I'm usually in a position of where I'm, whenever uh, fans of the book series come and kind of like we're, are talking about elements that they wish the films had included and not left out i'm usually in a position where i would defend the film's choices saying that i usually think that it was a a good decision on their part that said i do think finding some way to explain why harry had to be at the dursleys yeah would be needed even if it wasn't necessarily in that scene i can understand if they wanted to kind of get immediately to if they wanted to get things moving a lot faster i do think it would have probably helped for them to find some way to get that little bit of exposition in there eventually even if it didn't come until film seven Slughorn is 115 years old. Same as Dumbledore. He was in the same year as him. This is one of the redeeming things for this film for me. Jim Mm -hmm. Broadman. I love Jim Broadman. He's brilliant in whatever he's in. And he was fantastic as Slughorn. I remember coming to this film, like, generally whenever a new film came out, I started wondering, oh, I wonder who's going to play this, who's going to play that. And nine times out of ten, they got it right. This one, I had no clue as to who I pictured Horace Slughorn as. Um, I just... 
can't think who I I, I pictured him as in, in in the book. And then when when I see Horace Lug, oh yeah, sorry, Jim Broadbent as him, it's not what I pictured, but it is it's brilliant in its own way. So I was very happy that they brought brought Jim Broadbent in for this. Mm, mm. He played him a little more enfeebled and a little more uh, comedic than I read him in the book. Mm. But to, to me, that's good, because it gave him more of a character. It made him more likeable. I, I remember not liking the character in the book, but I actually did like and feel sorry for mm. Slughorn yeah. a la Jim Broadbent. He's a rare Slytherin that you could sort of want to get to know. Yeah. Kind of. I mean, he's weak. He's weak and he's venal, and that's interesting, and he's easy to manipulate, and, and it's a really great way of seeing here how Dumbledore manipulates him easily. He, he just sort of pops Harry in front of him and goes, you know, that would be quite good for your collections, wouldn't he? And then walks out of the room, and then comes back in, and it's, it, the job's done already, and you're like, whoa, this guy is a master at manipulation. And that starts to make you a little bit uneasy and a little bit untrusting of uh, Dumbledore straight mm-hmm. away. Slughorn's very kind of... He's very self-centred, as you would expect from a Slytherin, but not in a malicious way. He's a harmless man. Like, what's that like when he's, you know, trying to get the tentacular leaves or the acromantia vellum? Uh, mm. Or when he's going through his shelf and he's going, oh, look at this, you know, always takes an out my owl whenever I want to put um, an information, you know, put her, an opinion forward. And yep. such and such, oh, free tickets, season six, season the tickets. Hollyhead Harpies. The Hollyhead Harpies, free season tickets whenever I want them. It's like, it's, it's, it's nothing... It's been a while since I saw a match. It's nothing evil. He's just he's just getting you know, getting his own way in the world. He's a little old and pompous, and uh, he's I not a terribly dislikable old person. No, exactly. I can't think of an old professor I've had that reminds me of him, like exactly. But he feels incredibly familiar as just an old college, one of the mm. older college professors that you kind yes. of know around. I'd read the or listened to the book in advance to. He wasn't at all what I expected, but I ended up loving him in the film so much more than I did than his portrayal in the books. Jim Broadbent was just fantastic. He may have not been what Salazar had in mind, but he is a, uh, a poster child for what Slytherins could be if they actually just sort of put all of that ego to some work, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, he was teacher at Hogwarts between the 20s and the 80s in the books. That was a long, long time of teaching. For the record, I do like that they set up that... Uh they sort of very slowly set up and like creep in the sort of little feelings between Harry and Jenny. It's like never, no, all right, it's never like an immediate like, like, again, like I never saw that shot as sort of like a big romantic swell of, on Harry's part. It's just sort of like a, oh, there she is. Hey, she, I remember her. She's like, she's a good friend. And it's and like, just sort of that way that that sort of feeling can creep up on you with some people over time. What, what and especially, especially at that age with like people that you've been around at school for a long time and then just eventually you kind of just, it sort of slowly dawns on you and you don't even really realize it. I kind of like that the films sort of set that up bit by bit over time. Spinner's End and Narcissa Malfoy in The Unbreakable Band. Now, I'm going to talk about Narcissa specifically in films seven and eight. She is one of the characters I really kind of wanted to know more about. And mm. if you read between the lines, there's a lot about her which I did not get from the books, but the way the actress plays her, I think it was um, somebody actually uh, pointed out in the differences between the books and the film that Narcissa doesn't seem to be all that upset about the whole Draco thing. And if you look in her eyes, of course she's upset. She's terrified. She's just a really great actress playing Narcissa and, and just sort of holding it all in because if she lets on for one second her genuine motives are to keep Draco alive at all costs despite all of the things that the Death Eaters want to do, 
then her entire family's in danger. Particularly in the presence of Bellatrix, who, as you yeah. were saying last week, would throw herself in front of a bus for the Dark Lord. Yeah. She'll kill her members of her own family with no compunction. Frankly, frightened of her sister, and with good reason. Uh, and then you go to Nocturne Alley, which looks even more terrifying than it did in uh, the last time we saw it, and the only other time, I believe, was Chamber of Secrets. Uh, and Borgen and Burke's same shop as Harry pitched up in. Mm. Um, and uh, there's that... I think they, they pull it off just by having that one guy, or possibly a girl, standing up against a wall, nose to the wall, just muttering to her, themselves, just like, oh my God, everyone's gone crazy, and even Nocturne Alley is, you know, is shutting up shop. That's funny, they make it creepier by making it less creepy actually <laughs> they yeah. don't have like the weird skeleton hands and creepy magic-y things and like the yes. old witch outside acting all old and witchy they just have a dark alley with genuinely crazy people <laughs> it could be a real alley and it's just I was going to say that just is London really <laughs> alleys with crazy people that's all over the place it's Dickens done right if you actually went back to Dickens at the time yeah little annoyed that Luna finds Harry and not Tonks. Not Tonks. Yeah. They cut Tonks to the bone in this one. It's the tiniest of changes, but it does irritate me. Is Tonks still at school, or, or what? No, Tonks is, um, Tonks is an aura, isn't she? Oh, right. Tonks is he's an aura, and, the, and the, one of the Order of the Phoenix, and she's one of the people guarding the, uh, the, the, the castle. Yeah, there's quite a lot of Tonks coming back and forth and, and, and talking with them in, in book six, and she is cut to just that bit in the marsh in the, at Christmas yeah. time in this. Um, I don't know, if, if I was Natalia Taino, I would be a little bit miffed that my character was, was cut down quite so much, but she does um, quite a lot of emotional stuff, very um, subdued and sort of British drama with her character for her non-Phoenix appearances. Uh, Harry's broken nose puts him in line with one of the other characters who got their nose broken. I don't remember this. Sharon knows, because I told her earlier. Uh, Dumbledore. Aberforth broke his nose at Ariana's funeral. Oh, yes. And I don't know if he used Episky uh, to to fix it, because his nose always seems ever so slightly uh, crooked. And I think that was even mentioned in the in the book, which would effectively mean that he, he wore it as a badge of shame. Mm. Um, the devil may care that way. Yeah. And how do I look? Exceptionally ordinary. <laughs> Brilliant. Uh, and the other thing is the walking stick. Again, made a very tiny point of, but it's Draco's father's walking stick. And it, it's it's made a clear some point by uh, a Daily Prophet that uh, Lucius Malfoy is now in Azkaban and the shame of the wizarding community. And Draco is feeling exceptionally defensive about that, but carries his father's walking stick. As in becoming the man of the family, like he's trying yeah. to become his father, he's trying to be his dad and do his dad proud. And not just his walking stick, his wand. Has he got his wand? His wand is in the walking stick. Oh, yeah. oh, of course, Remember? Yeah. It's, yeah. The, uh, it's the, the headpiece pulls out from the walking stick, like, like one of those old walking stick knives. I think so, does he actually use it, or is he... No, no, he never uses it. He's, okay. His father has effectively been emasculated, and he's carrying his father's wand around with him. Mm. So, yeah. Um, then we're at, we're at Hogwarts, and uh, we get that uh, speech from Dumbledore, and he humanises Tom, uh, and, and talks about Tom Riddle as a person, uh, just to, to diminish that, that terrible, terrible fear of Voldemort, the creature, Voldemort the Dark Wizard, from the people to say, look, he is, was once like you, and says... Their greatest weapon is you. Implication being, if these dark wizards succeed, they're going to need the children to carry on these ideologies 
because ultimately if they kill everyone then they can only you know last one generation mm-hmm. so they need you guys to follow them so that's up to you ultimately he's also speaking directly to Malfoy at that point isn't he just in his own Dumbledore little way saying yeah. I already know that you've been told to kill me And there's that great one single shot where um, uh, when it plays uh, uh, an inflection of In Nocturne, that um, music from the, the choral music at the uh, near the end, uh, and an aura just walks across the back door of the hall. Mm. And it's just like, whoa, who's that? And then you remember that there are auras around. But it's just like that guy shouldn't be walking around the back there. And it's, it's almost like he's ruining the frame. It's, he's almost Arnold Vosloo. But... <laughs> You, you realise that there's a perimeter now set up around the hall. It's a really great way of just using one guy at the far distance to make a point. Mm. Don't they even cut to him like outside, like outside yeah, the door? And they there's three auras, yeah. and there's like three. There's two, one either side of the door, and then there's this bloke who's just marching just up and down. Through. And you just oh, get let's... the sense that everyone is being watched, not in a kind of I suspect you thing, but just they're watching out for absolutely anything to happen. Then there's the textbook and the finding. At, at this point, there really hasn't been that much in the way of, of, of huge departures from the book in the film yet, has there? Um, just slight tweaks to the beginning. There's nothing no. major that's different, no. Now, in the, in the film, they just go to the cupboard, and there are two textbooks in there, and they fight over them. It's Ron and Harry, and Harry ends up with the shabbiest-looking one and, and wanders off. Now, the implication there is that no one in, what, 30-odd years of that book just being at the bottom of the cupboard has picked it up and looked at it. Well, they would because normally, they, would have, they would have shot to the top of the class. Yeah, they would normally have their own, wouldn't they? The whole point is Harry wasn't expecting to take potions this year and neither was Ron, hence why they've turned up without textbooks. So usually... So there's more people in potions class than there'd normally be? Um, they, they, they did remind me... Those books did remind me of back in science when I was at school. We had, like, for... Um, certainly for chemistry and physics, there were these big textbooks there would be just piles of them on the side and you had to borrow them but there were ju- there were just more than that you would need for one class so even if you had a big full class there would be one or two left on the shelf and there would always be a completely battered one that had been worn down to buggery but clear but you never saw it being used i am quite happy to like accept that moment just to enjoy that little moment between harry and ron fighting over the book i the, I tell I say that this is my favorite film of the series, and and I think it's been said earlier in the, in this podcast series even that um that this book in this film is like kind of the plot dump. Not a lot happens in it except for major events at the end, and and I'd actually agree with that. I think I think that's a pr- pretty fair statement. But I think a big part of the appeal of the Harry Potter series is obviously the main story and uh, Harry and Voldemort and just kind of the escalation of him growing up to the to fight this huge battle but a big part of the appeal of the books is also just the fun of seeing these characters you love and inhabiting this magical school in this magical world and just in just like enjoying that and this part of what makes me love this film so much is that because there's not so much so many major story events that they have to cover there's time to enjoy that a bit there's time to have enjoy a potions class there's time to have to have a quidditch match again there's time to do some of these other just like characters interacting with each other and the actors having grown up and 
like grown into these roles really well. And despite we're getting to see basically Hogwarts, a Hogwarts year played out at its best before everything gets thrown like topsy turvy in the last two films. And so like little moments like this, like Harry and it's a, Harry and Ron fighting over a book, and the fun of the and the fun of the class of the class playing out, and the, them trying to mix potions and little, just little fun bits and moments throughout played out by these actors that we've grown to love I, I, is what makes this my favorite film, I think. So, yeah, I absolutely love this bit and the whole potions scene that follows. Even the bit before that, when they're just loitering in the corridor, mm. and McGonagall says... It's just says, total yeah, lower yeah. sixth. Yeah. Suddenly, you, you're allowed to wear your own clothes if, if you're in my school, and you, you suddenly feel like you own the school, and you're watching all the little kids running around. And you use it, what's it, the study periods that you're given. Yeah, you don't use the study, you, do, you use them to goof off. Totally. Obviously, another. Speak for yourself. Brilliant... <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, forgot we had to mind Miss Granger in the corner there. Another brilliant. He's mine to there. take extra classes, unfortunately. <laughs> Did you use a time turner? Uh, no. I just, I also love like another absolutely brilliant Maggie Smith line. Could mm. you take Mr. Weasley? He looks far too happy over there. Just <laughs> <laughs> brilliant. They've really accentuated Maggie Smith's shoulders. They're super pointy in this one. Mm. They've got like an extra That's an odd costume she's wearing, is it? Like, yeah. I noticed that this time. It's like, and it's not even. It doesn't even feel in place with what other wizards and teachers and all them wear. Is it? Maybe it's just like wearing a much older style or something. Mm. I, I think that's probably the case. But that that's it seems very significant. There's a point much much later in the film um, where she's trying to be very um, kind and understanding to Harry and. But you, but you look at her, and all you can see is this very pointy old woman. <laughs> yes, she's a sort of, she's more like a building than a person. It's one of the few films that features London prominently that doesn't obsess over the gherkin. But actually, now that I mention it, it is it starts a gherkin style built. Yes, the gherkin! It starts within the gherkin. Like, the, you know, the people in the gherkin are looking, oh my god, there are dark clouds, but it's okay, we are safe here in the gherkin. <laughs> the only. Uh, oh, one other last little thing. I don't think I noticed it before, but the little umbrages going, I will have order. Yes, I noticed that this time around. Right. Oh, is that the that thing one. that's going along the um, the string? It's like it's pedalling along on a string and yeah. it's holding. Yeah, it's it's, it's a nice little uh, somewhat libelous toy. <laughs> that's great. I never noticed that. Other things you should spot in the room of requirement. There was a harp in there. Anyone know where that harp was from? No. Film one. It's the one that plays Fluffy to sleep. Nice. No way. Well, there's a self-playing harp that uh, Quirrell sets up. Brilliant. And uh, also in the eighth film, Cornish Pixies. Yes. I love the idea that there's still some of those around, like that, like that Professor accidentally like let rats or some other sort of <laughs> like rodent get into the school, and so they're from then now on they've always been kind of a slight infestation. I think it's more than just a case of that he had them in his office, and then when he became uh, brain dead, uh, and they said it was St. Mungus, they were like, well, what are we going to do with his stuff? Um, a requirement? And just chucked <laughs> it all in there. I think most of what's in there is probably what's been thrown in there after the Defence Against the Dark Arts teachers leave. <laughs> Clear out their office and dump it all in the room of requirement. Leave or explode on stage. So yes. somewhere in there should, there should be like a large pile of crockery with kittens on them. <laughs> Poor dead kittens. <laughs> <laughs>
Oh, that'd be so horrible. Oh. Yeah, it does have a, an odd dichotomy. It's, it's got a lighter tone in it than you'd expect with, the, with the, 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 you know, the gathering darkness you'd expect it to be all doom and gloom and super emo. But it actually, it's kind of around this first potions lesson that it suddenly starts coming in with a ding, 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 in the music score. And it's actually got a little a lighter touch. Mm. Especially, it's, it's less sort of slap your thigh, fnar, fnar, funny than a lot of the, the earlier uh, films with some very obvious humour and Ugh, troll bogeys and stuff. There's this brilliant bit when Lavender... I'm, I was going to get to this later, but there's this brilliant bit where Lavender does that little... And then does the heart on the, <laughs> the, the window. Yeah. And like, L and, and R. And Harry fiddles with the train seat. Yes. It's, it's yeah. like he's been studying Ricky Gervais in a kind of what does this button do kind of way. Like, I, I don't want to be in this room right now. It is making me uncomfortable. And then like, Ron just sort of... Ron is oblivious to the tenth power in this film. Mm. <laughs> um, and he just, he doesn't have any awareness of what his behavior and his ignorance is doing to other people. I love that you brought up that bit with Harry fiddling with the seat, because that, that's a favorite little tiny side moment of mine, too. I just love that little awkward, and it's like, oh, I really don't want to watch this. <laughs> it's <laughs> brilliant, because like, one, one of my biggest axes to grind with this film is that they cut out so much that's crucial to the series and to the information, and certainly to the last two films. But, and they replaced it with all this teenage shenanigans, but that also is quite... It's a good reason to like this film, and it Watching it this time really reminded me of, I think it was um, James Carter said earlier in this series, that it would have been interesting to see the films if they were done as a series, as you know, as an animated series, as an episodic. This one felt quite episodic. The little comic relief mo- moments in between the storyline felt quite episodic. First you've got the potions lesson, then mm. the, trial, the, the Quidditch trials, then the Quidditch match, then the, you know, the... I have literally (laughs) divided it up into bullet points in sections like as you're saying yeah exactly yeah and it just I don't know it reminded me it was almost like it was almost like a series of Glee where they've cut out all the songs and put it together into a film I've never seen Glee but I will trust you on that okay it's just a very kind of a high school style not so much sitcom not so much comedy just a kind of a a a not dramas to a drama comedy series. A dramedy. A dramedy. Yeah, it's 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 like it's like a long drama. You know, a, 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 a series long dramedy cut into a film. And I, I presume, quite like that. I presume that that comes from David Yates' TV background, then. Yeah. But I, I mean, I I really I think the pacing of it. I I much prefer that because you do get the opportunity to kind of. Um, get to know the characters a bit better and the, the ebb and flow of the emotion runs a little bit more, um, uh, I don't organically? know how to put this. Yeah, organically. With a film, you've, you've usually got your sort of, your, your three act set or your five act set, depending on how long it is. And the emotional peaks and troughs are, in very specific places and quite a lot of the time depending on how well the film is handled they feel quite artificial because it's like they they reach the emotional crescendo at a specific time and then they have to sustain it for a certain amount of time and I think having it go up and down the way it does in this um, it lets those emotions grow in the audience much more organically, much more uh, naturally than than they would than they might have done in some of the earlier films. And I think that's one of the reasons why I like this one a lot. Um, and I like, I mean, I like all of 
David Yates ones. I think I prefer to any of the earlier films. Um, and I think that's one of the key reasons for that. It's almost in contrast to uh, Goblet, where we saw Harry and Ron's fight and then Hermione and Ron's fight after the ball, etc., where those kind of emotional moments are crammed into in and around the bigger action scenes. Yeah. Because there's and less of that to, to deal with in, in Half-Blood. You can just focus on that as is. That's right. And the dramatic, the, the resolution, sorry, of the, the emotional peaks mm. comes at a dramatic point rather than a, and then they had to go to class and they had to talk to each other, so they kind of had to just get over it and move on. Yeah. Which, again, makes it feel more real and, and more like high school, like you said. So that's what makes me love these this particular film so much. The, the kind of moment that uh, Quaron introduced in the third film, just that the moments where the kids, like, uh, the first night back up at school and they're just, like, eating candies and just doing kind of weird stuff, just goofing off, just kind of the kids at school moment. I love that just little bits like that that just make it feel more real in, like, a world, like, an actual world with actual people and characters. And so film six is just packed like the middle is packed with just tons of that it, with lots of little plot stuff and things to kind of keep it moving along and the foreboding uh shadows and color palette and everything to keep a to keep us mindful that there are a lot there's a lot of darkness building up and it's about to get completely unleashed in the next two films mm-hmm. but for the time being we're gonna we're getting to enjoy hogwarts one last time as it as we've known it yeah and we get a nice kind of goodbye to the traditional hogwarts year structure before everything gets just going just goes completely nuts. It's yeah, almost to emphasize what you're losing, isn't it? Because yeah, the, yeah like, totally. Certainly, if you've read the books, and if you'd read the last book, you know that this is the last time, as you say, that that Hogwarts is going to be as it should be. So it's showing Hogwarts at its peak. Mm-hmm. And, Absolutely. You know, yeah. And, it, and so that by the next film, you understand and appreciate what you've lost. Yeah, it's and I think Shire. There's, there's so much. <laughs> backstory that has been cut out of this from the book and I do understand why a lot of people and presuming that you're one of them James were were quite unhappy about how much was lost but in all fairness in terms of the um, uh, the filmic effect of, of what they're presenting here if you'd laden it down with that much information um, and your, your attention had been here, there, and everywhere, and at all points in time, and, and you know various other things that didn't really have anything to do with building the characters that you're looking at at this point. I think a lot of the effect of that would have been lost. That's not to say that they wouldn't necessarily have found a way to make all of that backstory interesting, but it would have been a different focus, and I think it would have been a different pace. And a lot of it doesn't become directly relevant until the next couple of films. And so I, mean, I can understand why they would want to try to trim down to just the essential stuff that's going to propel things to where they will be directly relevant in the next movie without trying to get too laden down and like too kind of twisted and confusing just going well, for this. Although some of it actually would have been kind of important, and that will come up later, specifically when we're talking about Horcruxes. Mm. We do get to meet Lavender Brown in the potions class, and everything about Lavender in the books was just awful to me. I, I couldn't stand the girl. And um, when you finally, you know, she, she didn't really figure as a main character. She only, she only ever sort of hung around laughing at Harry in the periphery for the first few uh, um, books. And then suddenly she's there all over Ron. And in the film, I don't know what the actress does, 
but there's that kind of girlish intensity about her when she's sort of like, you know, edging forwards towards the love potion, like her, her little fists clenched together, you know, around the book, sort of, you know, trying to smell it with Ramilda Vane next to her. And like, I suddenly started to really like Lavender, and I don't know mm. why, because she's an in- imbecile. <laughs> um, but she's just a normal girl, ultimately, when it comes down to it. A girl that I wouldn't have found particularly interesting when I was in school. But what happens ultimately to her in film eight is terrible. I remember what I'm doing in film eight now. Fenrir Greyback kills her. Really? Yeah. I don't remember that at all. It's disturbing, too. Yeah. Bloody hell, I'm, I'm now upset about that. Because, yeah, I'm, I'm the same as you. You, know, like you. In the book, you don't really like the character. In this, you kind of... Not, not so much like, just... Except she, you know, I, we all know girls like that. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's very but, quick. Uh, it's kind of like a blink and you'll miss it death sort of scene, but it's definitely, if you see it, it's disturbing. It's not in the book. Um, uh, it, yeah, I think like she's been jinxed or something like that, but in, in the film it is quite clear that Fenrir has ended her life and Hermione's spell, I believe, um, knocks him into the gorge. Uh, and uh, justifiably so, but it's, it's. Lavender, like Dobby, is a case of innocence and not deserving of what's happening to her. She shouldn't be there. Mm. And yet she, she was one of the people who fought. There was a reason she was in Gryffindor in the first place. Right, so the flashbacks, uh, the many, many flashbacks in the book, uh, we get pared down to just, let's, let's say, the important ones. Uh, so we get uh, Wool, Wool's Orphanage, but we don't get the House of Gaunt. Nothing of importance is here other than Marvola Gauntering. I can yeah. completely see why they dropped this one. The, the book, as I said, was an info dump. It's almost like she had planned a second book, like a separate book that was The Life and Times of Tom Riddle. Mm. Um, and you find out there that, that Marope, is, Marope is in love with a muggle called Tom Riddle. Who, and I believe lives in a big house on the hill. Live big house on the hill. So that would make the this, house that we've seen before in that in film form. Uh, the uh, one which would make uh, this uh, village uh, the one from Goblet of Fire. Yes. And I can't Little remember. Hangleton. Little Hangleton. Yes. So that's all you need to know from the first one. And I grant you this this flashback completely needed to be cut out. Yeah. It's in the others. Uh, If I may sum up, Marope uh, uses a love uh, potion to enchant uh, Tom Riddle of the manor. He uh, runs away with her. They have a child together. Then he retreats when the love potions wear off. She is forced to run away, taking with her uh, Salazar Slytherin's locket and the ring belonging to Marvel O'Gaunt. She has the child, dumps him at Wool's Orphanage. Young Tom Riddle grows up in Wool's Orphanage, unloved, rejected, trips to the beach where he, you know, scared and, and traumatised two kids in a cave, which obviously is the cave that we see later, his early awareness of his powers. The, the young child actor playing young Tom Riddle was actually really good, genuinely mm. unnerving. Hero, Hero finds, finds Tiffin. Tiffin. Hero finds Tiffin. That is the poshest name in all the world. <laughs> there is no name posher. Hero finds Tiffin. Yeah, it is his nephew. Uh, and yeah, he does an ex- extremely good uh, good job of that. Uh, anyone notice that he had seven stones on the windowsill? I did notice stones. I didn't notice that there were seven. Nice. There were seven. It, it, if you um, freeze frame during the scene when Harry touches uh, Marvolo Gaunt's uh, ring with the resurrection stone, um, and it spins around, you get a flash of Nagini um, 
uh, young Tom Riddle screaming, and it would appear to be creating his first Horcrux, although he appears to be in Hogwarts clothing. That might have been when he killed Moaning Myrtle. Um, uh, and then the seven stones on the windowsill. Oh, wow. And then uh, an older Voldemort, uh, as he would appear later. Hmm. They do mention uh, in the book that he's besotted with the number seven, though, don't they? Because yeah. seven's meant to be, like, the most magical number, or yeah. something like that. There's, there's the whole Terry Pratchett, seven sons of seven sons of seven yeah, sons. Which, as I said before, there are seven Weasley kids. If Ginny had been a boy, she'd have been a seventh son. Yeah. Yes. Um, him going back to Little Hangleton and discovering what happened to his family and, yeah. and discovering who his father was. He um, built up in his mind that he was going to hate his, uh, he was going to was it hate his mother and love his father because his mother was weak and his father would have been a pure blood wizard or something. Yeah, like and then he found out his, his dad was obviously muggle. a muggle, um, which he hated. And there were other flashbacks, like he did work experience at Borgen and Burks, where he got to know, you know, learn about... Hepzibah Smith, who happened to have come across his locket from Merope, and then he figured that that is his property. Yes. So he killed Hepzibah for it. Who also he had, had the, the goblets of, of the cup of Helga Hufflepuff. Helga Hufflepuff, yes. And this is the crucial thing, like... Through the that stuff of, would have been kind of important, ultimately, for the whole Horcrux thing. I think the fact they cut out so much, I grant you, you didn't need the House of Gaunt, and you could probably have got rid of, or at least cut down, Hepzibah Smith. But mm. ultimately, not doing anything but the orphanage and the what is a Horcrux mm. does a complete disservice to the final two films, because there is a reason for each object to be a Horcrux. He chooses... The Ring of Gaunt, because it's a, a family thing. The Locket, because it's Salazar Slytherin's. The Cup, because it's Helga Hufflepuff's. The Diadem, because it's Rowena Ravenclaw's. He, it's implied that he would have wanted to find something that was Gryffindor's, so the, because he believes that the, the Horcruxes will be stronger if they have... They're linked to strong wizards. If they're already strong magical objects and, and have a strong magical heritage. And you have no idea about this in the films at all. No. If you if you read all Hermione had to do was say that something like it's it it seems like he's trying to connect himself with all of the wizarding it's just like a single line. I think it's it's Dumbledore says um, in in one of their many conversations either either side of the flashbacks in the book says you will notice that he will be you know that that he's obsessed with the number seven because it's um, magical and that he was looking for items that already had strong magic Mm. to. You know, so he would be looking for stuff that was... Belong- also that he feels a very, very strong connection with Hogwarts is the yeah. first place that made him feel special. Exactly. Which is why it's all about the owning of Hogwarts for him by the end. There's another place where I feel like that information, even if they didn't want to do it with the full flashback, with the full flashback uh, scenes, that is some information that you definitely are missing in those last two films. Even if they had to yeah. move it to somewhere in Seven... Mm. Then that kind of that does provide a little bit of extra context to what's going on. But that they I think never identify the locket as Slytherins in the films at all. No, it's, it's just got a great big S on it. It's covered in snakes. It requires Parcelmouth to open it. Mm. If they had included that information, I would wanted it to have been in seven. Like if you put it all up here in six, then there's lots of information that is useful later, but it's not useful now, and it's kind of mm. distracting, and you lose track of it. Wait, why did they tell us all of that stuff, like, like without well, put so much emphasis it. on it without letting us know? But if you can find some way to include it in 7, that's where it's really relevant to what they're doing. Yeah. If they'd have found a way to do it quickly in 6, quickly, but, I mean, if you look at the, um, like, case in point, the, the end of Azkaban, 
where they crammed all of that information into about uh, ten minutes of information into about five minutes. It's, Shouting it's the Daniel shouting. Floyd way, just make it just double <laughs> speed. I don't know, just just to highlight it for the audience. But ultimately, when it comes down to it, to regular cinema going audiences, they don't care. It's a no. MacGuffin. We don't care why Voldemort chose this locket. We know Harry has to destroy it because Frodo had to destroy the wing. We get it. Yeah. The only they people, don't the only need to know that care. it was Salazar Slytherins. The only people who care are those who already know. Yeah. So. And that, unfortunately, is the giant double bind of why they had to leave all this stuff out of six. Yep. Uh, but the thing is, it's, it's an accompaniment to the book. If you know about it and are incensed that it wasn't in the book, then you know about it. You're yeah. safe. It is, it's like, like well, well, what about the people who don't know about it? They don't care. It, it almost gets to the point where you know it so well from the books that you honestly don't realise they don't say it in the film. I still, I, I look at the... the I'm still furious about the whole Moon and Wormtail, Padfoot and Prongs thing. Yeah. But, but equally, you know, as soon as they say, oh, you know, Mrs. Mooney, Wormtail, Padfoot and Prongs, you know instantly who those people are, even though you haven't been told. And so you know that no one else in the audience who hasn't read the books does know. Yes. The tripod in the lower sixth. There is a a, a slight change in, in in the three characters here because Harry, uh, as usual, has a quest, but he has redoubled his efforts now because he's now working with Dumbledore and he's gotten back to uh, Dumbledore for because you remember that in Phoenix he was estranged from him. He couldn't even mm. look at him in the, in the in the face, and so in this one they they spend a lot of time colluding, which is important for the end. Um, so Harry has something to do. Ron, obviously, with his Quidditch and being head boy and being a prefect and being popular and getting a girlfriend, has got tons to do and is totally oblivious to the fact that all of this stuff is ridiculously boring to everybody else around him. <laughs> and Hermione is very, very much alone. I don't know if you, you guys got that from her in this. No, I, I, I took from this that, that Hermione and Harry grow closer as friends. This is the one where you can... In a number of the books that, you know, he keeps on referring to Hermione as like, she's like my sister, she's my best friend, etc. Like, this is the film where you really see how, how close they are. Yeah. Um, and there's a really lovely piece of music on the score, Harry and Hermione. Yes. Which is when they're at the bottom of the stairs and she's just, you know, seen, you know, Ron and Lavender get together, etc. And it's just this kind of, I don't know how to put it. Delicate. It's, yeah, very delicate, very kind of warm. But in, in, I, I feel really sad for Hermione at that point because I know it's just a, a little, you know, a, a teenage tiff and they're ultimately going to end up together at that point but Hermione's sort of spent so much time throwing all of her effort into schooling mm. and it's, it's like at this point every other kid has started studying and she's almost got this vacuum where you know she's like okay what else do I do well in all that time I could have been paying attention to Ron he's now wandered off with someone else what have I done with myself yeah. it's, it's tricky how the, the relationship between them is played out in this one because as you've pointed out Ron is so oblivious to everything absolutely everything she's already made the comment about emotional range of a teaspoon but really he takes it beyond the joke in this one her her academic study has always been the thing that has defined her and like you say everybody is now doing similar level stuff i mean not not on the same scale but she's obviously dropped all the extra subjects she's doing the equivalent of A-levels, but so is everyone else. Harry's um, topping her in potions, too. Mm. 
Absolutely, yeah. In a very frustrating scene for That's her. right, yeah. yeah. And the hair yeah. reverts. <laughs> She's been on top of it for a couple of years now, but the hair reverts. In the book, it was always bushy. Yes. It yeah. never goes but, but she gets the hang of the glamour thing, remember, and she keeps it under control. But um, this is where I think her her essential Gryffindor-ness comes through more than anything else. And, and you know, this is where she's she starts to have this wider view of what Harry's got to accomplish and the fact that it's yeah. just a given that she is going to be a part of that, which adds so much more to her character than just the clever girl. So. Well, she's, she was present at the ministry in the last one. She knows that it started to get very, very serious. She believes it, and it, it somewhat undermines her studies as well, because she could study and be the top girl in Hogwarts, but if the next year the school is run by Voldemort, it's for nothing, mm. which is why she leaves, and, and very understandably so. Yeah. Um, the, the reason I said that she's alone is in the Quidditch trials, when uh, one goes, you're a bit big, aren't you? One of the beaters build, and McLagan goes, Whoop-oomph! and Mr. Miyagi's a fly. Yeah. Uh, she's on her own up in the stands. She is shot alone. Yeah, she's and very separate there's... from everybody. There's like other clusters yeah. of people around, but she is completely by herself. I don't think that says that she's alone, she's lonely in general. I think that just shows how almost dependent she is on Ron and Harry. Yes. And if, if they're playing Quidditch, then she's got no one to sit with. Yeah. Then there's the, the bit with the cursed necklace and Katie Bell, and you get a little f- tiny flash of that millennial rubber I was talking about for episode one. Yeah. Um, when, when they fling her body down. But before that happens, there's possibly the most disturbing moment in a Harry Potter film, with the maybe exception of uh, a handful of other moments, including the death of uh, Charity Burbage. When Katie is cursed and screams silently, it's genuinely frightening. Mm. I didn't pick up a lot. The first time, again, it's, it's daft how coming on for Gonzo makes you so much more observant about a film. I never noticed Draco going into a room in the Three Broomsticks when they're when they're in there. You know, when they're in there and they're drinking the butter beer. I never noticed that you actually see Mal- Malfoy sneak into a corner. In the original book, didn't he uh, uh, enchant Madame Rosmerta with the Imperious Curse? Yes. Yeah. Uh, who would have been Julie Christie? So unfortunately, we didn't get to see her again. And then you get that wonderful bit from Snape. I don't know if this is in the book. Uh, after Harry says it was Draco, I just know. You just... Just... know. Once again, again, you astonish me with your gifts, Potter. Gifts mere mortals could only dream of possessing. How grand it must be to be the chosen one. I don't think that was in the book, but I'm so glad it's in the film, because it's, it's, just, it's another of those brilliant... A brilliant... Alan Rickman moment. You could have a top ten Alan Rickman moments for this series of films. However, go back to the words, the chosen one. When he says it to Harry and he says, the chosen one, and glares at him, Mm. he's talking to James. Yes. She chose me you. Yeah, yeah. And it's it's again it's it's the du- duality of Snape's character. As much as he wants to protect this kid, he also wants to punch him over and over again. And to distract slightly, another great Maggie Smith line: "Why is it always you three? Sharon said, "Well, it's ma- mainly really always Harry." And I said, "Well, she can't single him out and go, why is it always you, Harry, and one or both of these two?" <laughs> <laughs> That's the flip side of being the chosen one, really. The trouble comes and finds mm. you. But she's do she is doing exactly the right thing as a teacher in mm. that she is keeping them at kid level. She's keeping them at school level and mm. not giving them a buy because 
they're being pursued by dark forces. Actually, that did occur to me the other day. Harry grew up in a very underprivileged situation. They never mention anything that muggles do. Harry never, Harry never says to Ron, look, we've got to meet up and go to the cinema at some point. You'll love this thing. Because I, I guarantee Ron has never been to the Odeon. I, I, just, I, it, I come back to Lyra in um, The Subtle Knife when she goes to a film with Will and then comes out and says, that was the best thing I've ever seen in my entire life. Because she's, there's no such thing as a cinema in Lyra's mm. world. And it just kind of just something like just bowling or something would that that Harry should be party to, but kind of really hasn't really had the chance to to do. Rather than just riding around on the the rails the whole time, he could have been spending his summers just hanging out with with the other the wizarding kids. I'm just kind of surprised he didn't. To be fair, though, the yes, he's not done any of that stuff when he was growing up, but then he's gone to Hogwarts where he's got everything that there is in the wizarding world. Yeah. I could see him taking Ron bowling and Ron rolling the ball, point? missing it completely <laughs> and going, right, what does it do now? No, that's it. Really? Uh, today, Ron, we're going to play chess. Wizard chess? No. Chess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, I think it's telling that Mr. Weasley is kind of a bit of the oddball wizard and that he actually cares about muggle things and like mm-hmm. finds muggle things interesting. It's just like Hermione bringing up that her parents are dentists at the, at the dinner and just like, oh, is that a dangerous line of work? No, there's a kid bit my dad once. On a side confused. note, I do love what McLagan does with a, with a prophet of all. He's just like licking his finger at my mind. He's like, oh, God, you slimy She looks like she's about to be sick, which is perfect. And then he eats dragon testicles. Nice. And then he's sick, which is also perfect. Another great Alan Rickman moment as well. I was like, when um, he's, he's telling him, McLagan, you've just bought yourself a month of detention. Not so fast, Potter. <laughs> just, as you can see, Daniel Radcliffe just sneaking away. I, I've never bought the notion that, that, that muggle, sorry, wizard kids don't have any knowledge of the, the muggle world. Because unless they are kept at home, away from all muggle families, they would know what oh. a cinema is, what bowling is. Are we going to get into this? Because Sharon and I were talking about this this week, and it's fascinating if you think about it, and it's it's story breaking if you think about it. It is. It's complete story breaking. Like, and th- the amount of the amount of Muggle-born children that go to Hogwarts, you're not telling me that they don't bring. Oh yeah, like Dean brings in music. You're not telling me one of them doesn't bring in like a portable DVD player or something. Yeah. Like, what's this? It's called Die Hard. You'll love it. Yeah. Um, what's I, it, what's this? Think... It's called a Game Boy. You know. I do think to an extent. You look at where the borough is, out in the middle of nowhere. The Weasleys, I think, are kind of, they they strike me as being that kind of home-educated, wouldn't have any interaction with with the regular world kind of kids. And and he reminds me of Kenny from South Park in some ways. He seems like sort of that that little, you know, the the kid that you hang around with but doesn't... um, can't do any of the stuff that that you would go out and do, and I, I do. Everything think that Ron, is worth doing costs at least ten dollars. Yeah, I, I do think Ron is sort of set apart a little bit, and because Harry spends so much time with him, mm. you, I think you probably do get a slightly slanted view of it. And I think most of them probably would, as you said. So many of the kids at Hogwarts are going to be half bloats mm. um, yeah. and and have those experiences. But I think it, Hogwarts is just somewhere that's completely different and completely removed. And I mean, you look at, at boarding schools and I'm guessing they probably don't let them bring in portable DVD players and Game Boys and things like that. Yeah, fair boy. Right, but right, Dragon's right. Eggs are alright. <laughs> yeah, Dragon's Eggs are fine but you know, the DS Lite has to stay at home. Yeah. However, 
Look at numbers. This is what we, Sharon and I were looking at uh, the, the other day. How many kids does Hogwarts take on every year? Can't be that much more than, say, 500 in uh, over seven years? Yeah, we'll go with that. Okay, right. 500 kids in England, right? Are there any other wizarding schools of the same age range in England that ever get mentioned, ever? Is it not constantly implied that Hogwarts is the only place in England where you can go if you're yeah, if you get educated with the star? It's explicitly um, stated at one point. Does anyone ever mention a school that you go to before Hogwarts? No. Those kids may have gone to regular muggle schools with the pure blood yeah, well, Harry kids be Harry, educated. Harry uh, went to a primary school with Dudley. Yeah. Yeah, well, his upbringing was kind of unusual. But say Hermione would have gone to a regular school, right? Her parents being dentists. Because she wouldn't have even exhibited wizarding powers until she was about six or seven. Okay, so they're all homeschooled if they're uh, uh, wizards. Now, that's 500 kids-ish over uh, seven school years. That means that the entire wizarding community in England is about the size of a small village. Okay. Ultimately, if you look at the ministry, that's where most of the wizards work. There's really no more than about 3,000 people who work there. And the, the, the things they talk about within England, we're talking an immensely small population here. And then if you look at, you talk about the wizards around the world, all over the place. You got Bulgaria, you got France, you got. All the others. All the others. So here is my issue. <laughs> If Voldemort did actually take over the entire wizarding community, which is about the size of Ipswich... It's a lot smaller than Ipswich. It's smaller than Ipswich. <laughs> Ipswich is quite big, actually. Then if he had said, right, we are going to take over the Muggle world, how do they go about doing that? Yeah. I mean, you take on the might of the American military and they nerve-gas you to pieces using 19th century technology. I would love to have seen Voldemort take on America. Seriously. <laughs> been first, it, would have been, it would have been like 24 with magic. All of the, <laughs> I would watch that show. All of their magic is designed to repel other magic. There is no magic to repel bullets. You have to be able to say the incantation before it gets to you. Non-bulleter. You they're about to shoot you. Non-bulleter. If 50 snipers all shot Voldemort at once, he'd go to pieces. Yeah. Literally. Which begs the question, why, why does, you know, going back to Cornelius Fudge having, you know, close ties with John Major, why does he not ask, look... We need there's, the SAS. Yeah, there's this bloke that's caused a bit of trouble. Can you put the SAS on us on him? Thanks, cheers, lovely. The charming fellows. You want someone killed? <laughs> um, <laughs> the brigade that were the one, rather than the boy who lived. Yeah, the entire. I, do th- I was going to say actually, I do think there are more of them than that. I think that they there are quite, probably quite a lot of witches and wizards who live integrated with the Muggle world. Yeah. I think just, it's, there's there's a select few of them who probably choose to stay in that segregated environment because they're more comfortable with it. It's a massively insular community. I think we compared it to the Amish. Yes. Or, yeah. Yeah. It's it's I mean, kind it, of like it's, <laughs> it's protection as well, isn't it? I mean, we, you know, we we two families, Voldemort's and Dumbledore's, both mm. have um, tragedies or at least um, tension in their past from altercations with muggles. Mm. You know, Dumbledore's father was arrested for killing three muggles that harassed his daughter Ariana. Gaunt's, Gaunt was, um, I think, was, was punished for either he or Morphin attacking muggles that were coming around on, on you know, and, and bothering Merope. 
Now, the reason, uh, and I'm going to answer my own stupid question, because it really is a stupid question, Voldemort versus the American army, why Voldemort wouldn't bother going up against the American army is because he doesn't need to. He'd just turn into smoke, disappear, they wouldn't be able to do anything about it, they'd try and track him, Bourne style, they'd be like, we don't know where he is, he's in a forest in Albania, it doesn't matter. Even if you shoot him to pieces, he'll come back. Uh, but he could simply just sift his way into the White House, kill the president, and then make himself look like the president. Polyjuice potion. And that's how he'd do it. It's that simple. Interestingly, um, uh, interestingly, to go back on previous Gonzo memes, that's pretty much the plot of G.I. Joe, where Arnold Foslu, friend <laughs> of the show... <laughs> No! Well, we're on crazy tangents here. I was, I've actually often wondered, like, what an American uh, magical school would look like. Yeah, same. Like the American Hogwarts. Yeah, the boarding school thing. I don't think is quite as common or popular or existent here. Mm. I guess it happens, but not a. Uh, not nearly so often. Oh, again, I think you'd, you'd probably have. It would be like an Amish school. It would be like the kind of um, community school that that chooses to teach independently and not the same things as state schools would teach. You know what, that's actually perfect and I'm going to assume from now on that that's what the Amish are. <laughs> <laughs> that They're makes them really interesting. <laughs> they wear buckles on their shoes and they have wands. That's why, that's why they give up technology, because they don't need it. They don't need exactly. it, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and they seem so weird and they, they have their weird crazy costumes often and they live off by themselves. That's perfect, I'm just going to believe like, that. How else could they get so many barns up in such a short space of time? <laughs> You know what the uh, is? The Amish really would never want to read Harry Potter because it would be the devil. We are so crazily off topic right now. By the way, if there's any Amish listening to, to this podcast, how? What are the odds? <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't mean to offend you folks, but, uh, but yeah, how? I find this a really difficult question to answer myself, and I wrote the character, so I don't see why you should find it any easier, really, but I'm going to ask. Um, is there any character with whom you identify particularly? The easy wisdom and slightly kind of twinkling uh, um, of quality of Dumbledore. I, I've always had this um, love of great teachers. Uh, the first uh, fictional character I really rounded when I created was for a radio program, because was, was an old Cambridge Don, Donald Trefusis. Yeah. <laughs> Do you remember an, an Archbishop of Canterbury called Ramsay, okay. the last of the really sort of great and monumental primates of the Church of England, by which I don't mean the nape, of course. <laughs> um, and uh, I remember seeing him being interviewed by a Malcolm Muggeridge type person who said, no, you're, you're a Canterbury, very wise man. He said, am I, am I, am I wise, am I, I wonder, am I wise, am I? And, uh, <laughs> and the interviewer said, well, Your Grace, perhaps you could explain what you think wisdom is. Wisdom, wisdom, mm. Mm, wisdom. I think it's the ability to cope. Oh, said, is that a marvellous definition. You know, it, it is I'm so right. I mean, it comes, as you know, it's the wisdom is, is the kingdom of wit. It is wit, witdom, wit-knowing, the German of knowing Wissenschaft and so on. And in wit is a, so is a marvellous... you are Dumbledore, look. <laughs> <natural> <laughs> teacher. It's that sort of <laughs> and that sense of being able to cope with things. Yes. And it's not how much you know. No. Yeah, and you sense Something that with that, that rather marvellous, occasionally rather tired, worn quality that Dumbledore has mm -hmm. because he's experienced so much and he can cope, but he would almost rather not be able to. That's, <laughs> a, that's exactly right. Dumbledore does express the regret that he has always had to be the one who knew and who had the burden of knowing. 
and um, he would rather not know. But of all, I mean, of course, Harry Potter is the one, because he's the point of consciousness of the book. Harry is the, is, is the one who is under, undergoes all the tests, the ordeals by yes. fire and all, all kinds of other things. And, and as with any hero, you, you measure yourself against him, and there are times when I think, I would just run away, or mm. I wouldn't care, I'd wave my wand, even though I'm not supposed to. You know? My favourite comment about Harry uh, at the time of the first book was it was a schoolboy who was interviewed on television so, and, and asked why he liked Harry, the character, so much, and he said... He doesn't seem to know what's going on a lot of the time, and nor do I. <laughs> That's so good. Right, so let's talk about the attack on the burrow, because this was a bone of contention with many, many fans of the oh. book. Okay, so, may I just talk about this before James goes off on his rant? I Okay, the attack on the burrow is absolutely key. This is not an essay, I'm just cooking this up really as I, as I sit here. The attack on the burrow is absolutely key for making you genuinely nervous about what's going to happen. It's a key action sequence in the middle of the film to start instilling fear in the viewer and in, in people who are actually invested in Harry. It's a foreshadowing of what's going to come and the notion that the Death Eaters, like the Nazis, will come and bust your door down and, and tear you to pieces. There are various contradictions in terms of the fact that the borrower is supposed to be protected and the borrower is supposed to be protected all the way up to the beginning of the second book. And obviously, if they knew that there, there were there was things going on there, why did they even leave? Why didn't they just attack en masse all in one go? Ultimately, they were there to scare Harry. They were there to, 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 to put the wind up him. And um, interestingly, to draw out the, the, the people that he cared about. But that's what the scene also serves to do. It serves to show that Ginny will jump into the fire to be close to Harry and to keep him safe. And it's as key a scene as, what's this? A ranger caught off his guard... You needed to know that Arwen was worth Aragorn, and you needed to know that Ginny is worth Harry, because she doesn't ever get to do anything really important in the books. And this was a great moment to have them fighting back-to-back in a very scary situation up against Fenrir Greyback and uh, Bellatrix Lestrange. And yes, the creepy marsh, which didn't seem to be there before, does seem to be almost like put there to make it even creepier, but it gives a really horrible sense of, 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 of the darkness closing in around them and that even when they are just outside their own doorstep of the safest most comfortable warm place that they can be got at You know what? I actually agree with all of that. That's a very that that has actually calmed me considerably. That short essay there's calmed me considerably on this on this scene. I still hate it, but I can <laughs> see why it is in there. Because yeah, without it, like, so in the book, rather than Bellatrix suddenly showing up and and setting things on fire, mm. it was Rufus Scrimgeour comes in and there's a lot of aw- aw- awkwardness between Percy and the family, and he is trying to get. Harry to say, you know, to be the Ministry's poster boy, as as, as Harry puts it. Say that we're doing a good job, yeah. Potter. Absolutely. And it would, it would have been interesting to introduce um, mm. Scrimgeour earlier, but that scene doesn't really serve any purpose, and it just adds to what is essentially a very slow book where nothing happens, and it would have made an even worse, very slow film where nothing happened. But the creepy cornfield... This is the reason I hate the creepy cornfield. The I, I, as much as I see, yes, you're right. You know, we see that Ginny would run into anything, but it just irritates me that 
when Harry goes, Hermione doesn't run, Ron doesn't run, no one tries to stop this, this girl. Bear in mind they're upstairs. They're upstairs and Harry runs outside and runs straight out. And yeah, that kind of catches everyone off guard. But then if you see someone else running from upstairs, you think, ah, hang on, we've already lost one through the fire. Why are we, we're not going to lose another one. You wouldn't let Ginny run out. I just, it irritates me because it's, it's. I think at the time they were trying to clear, if you watch it frame by frame, they're trying to clear a path so that they can get through. Yeah, and she runs through. But Ginny still has to barge past a good couple of Weasleys. I can't remember which ones, but there's a couple of Weasleys that she has to barge past to get out of the burrow itself, not just through the fire. And just just the whole thing irritates me. The scene... Hang on, narrative contrivances irritate you in a J.K. Rowling story? Of course. (laughs) Um, Yeah, just... Oh, dear. I I, I can see why they've done it. I can see why they've added it to the film. But I I take it literally as that. It is a, is a, a scene added because this is a film, because this is a filmic thing that needs to keep audiences interested, and that's why I just don't pay any attention. I don't it's a car chase. It's, I don't think it's, it's a, a car chase. chase. Exactly. It's a car chase. I'm going to disagree on that, because I actually think it's, as Alex has said, it's, it's really key to the development of um, Harry and Ginny's relationship. But in, in a sense of the way it develops in the book is completely different from the way it develops in the films, and it has to be. In the book, you've got pages. You've got time. You've got um, lots of interactions, little interactions that mount up and and build up into a relationship. And you know that they're starting to feel attracted to each other because it says so. But you can't do that in a film. You've got to show it. And more to the point, you can't show it a little bit at a time over ages because otherwise you have the bridges of madison county and it's terrible um, the, 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 the pie the mince pie bit with ron doing some amazing cock blocking like weasleys <laughs> are expert cock blockers they They're are brilliant. yes like, yeah but um, at least fred and george do it on purpose fred and george are brilliant fred and george like just cho chang um what's it like just as he's about to walk to cho chang and the two of them you know just kind of block him and moving and block him from going to cho mm. and trying to talk about you know how they can deal with umbridge Ron, obviously, with the pies, plate of pies. My absolute favourite is um, when Harry and Ginny are kissing just before and the George wedding. George comes in with a toothbrush. It's just, no, it's just it's a cup of coffee. In his ear. It's, it's, it's what the, remains of it? It's the it's the exaggerated sneaking across the kitchen and then just standing there and getting into a pose and then just running. He's ready when the moment's right. Morning. <laughs> <laughs> just, I love the Weasley's, Weasley's cup blocking there, but like. We've had the little interaction of the pie, and then just just before the burrow is set on fire, they're about to kiss. So there's our little interaction. We see that they're becoming, you know, they're becoming. She's she's tied her shoelace for him. Right. Aha. Right. About, yeah. If this was a British independent film that was only going to have a British independent audience, that would be <laughs> enough. But yeah. it's not. It is a Hollywood movie, and I don't think that Hollywood audiences generally, or, and Daniel, please forgive me for what I'm about to say, That's American fine. audiences generally would accept that that is enough to show strong feelings between people. It's not a Jane Austen book. Yeah. Indeed. I think it, I think uh, it would have shown just... it somewhat, but I, I also like that immediately after we have that kind of scene where we've, we've had a little bit of the romantic tension kind of building up between them, the fact that she does charge out there immediately, it immediately kind of, that she is, it, it, like you said, Alex, it makes her an equal in a way to him. But mm. it is also like, 
she has not really been engaging in a lot of these big crazy adventures, the kinds of things that he's had is having to do on a regular yeah. basis. And she's immediately like willing to leap out into that danger to join him and become, and, uh, fight alongside him in that sort of same sort well, of way. He, I think it kind of shows an, an additional kind of connection that she's willing to form and commitment to him. Yeah, which well, I kind he of like. saved her life, if you think about it, in Chamber. He's, yeah. he's directly responsible for the fact that she did not get killed by Tom Riddle. And the, the fact that she will, as you say, throw herself out there to, to match that puts her in a position of, of being um, acceptable for him. To most people, not James, clearly, but <laughs> to, to most people. I like that she's also given a bit of a toughness in a way that, that, and even in smaller bits, like with the Quidditch tryout sort of things, where she gets everyone to shut it and like and shut it. Yeah, it adds a bit of a. She's got a bit of her mother <laughs> to her, and it just unless something about that makes her feel like an all the better match for Harry in a way. I don't know. I half expected her to be along for the ride in uh, in book seven. I was really kind of uh, hoping for them to be a development of, of their their uh, relationship, but it's it's almost like no, no, no. That's got to wait until the story is over, mm-hmm. and all of that happens afterwards. But this is just a little taste to show that Ginny is tough enough to stand by Harry during the absolute worst of it. Not just I'll kiss you, but then if things start exploding, I'm probably going to stay out of that. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, other additional side note, I want to. Like one thing I really like about this film is like there's a sense of design to the visual effects in this film that is fantastic that I, like is just beautiful in a lot of ways and to, so it which kind of surfaces in a lot of little small moments the moment with uh after the ring of fire around the uh, uh around the burrow when uh, Bellatrix kind of blows in and materializes is mm. fantastically done and the fire the fire effect is amazing as well but that is just like a it's like hats off to those guys because that is amazing. Can we talk about Greyback briefly? Yeah, because they don't do it in any of the films. No, they don't. They don't. They, uh, do they even name? Like, I think we see a poster no. that says he, he's, he just says wanted Fenrir Greyback. That's it. In the books, he's spoken of of in hushed tones in kind of oh, Fenrir Greyback. I think that might be Fenrir Greyback, and then everyone's extremely worried because he is. For the folks who haven't read it, he is a werewolf who sadistically attempts to turn when he's near to people so that he can infect them with lycanthropy. He's the person who turned Lupin all those years ago. And um, as, as such, there's a reason why Lupin freezes on the doorstep, because he can smell him. And um, that moment when they're in the rushes and Greyback's just there, they've created the place for Greyback to be the most terrifying you know, a forest, you know, dark, tall trees and, and uh, or, or, or indeed in this case, rushes in a swamp, just somewhere surrounded by nature, nowhere near your allies, nowhere near civilization, where all that you've got is the wilderness. And Greyback is the terrifying beast that lurks in the night. He's even quite taunting in the books. Like, um, certainly like when, you know, towards the end when they're up on the astronomy tower, uh, you know, in the film, you know, um, Dumbledore says, you know, I think the introductions are in order. In the book... He, he recognises Fenrir Greyback, and Greyback te- you know, taunts him, saying, oh, I've come here for your children. I've come to your school for your children, etc. And he doesn't get a single line in this film. No, he's, he's just basically the muscle. He, they treat him like they treat Sabretooth in X-Men. Yes. Hmm. Um, I mean, I crossed it at the end, wasn't it? Like, you know, they, they kind of mention him in um, uh, the seventh film, where, what's it like, Bill? Is it Bill? I'll he's, trust you on he's that. He's got a scar yeah. across his face, and he says, oh, I got this off a guy called, uh, you know, off, off a wolf called Fenrir, Fenrir Greyback. That 
ha- is meant to happen in the finale of this film. And he's going to get to that, yeah. And, and uh, we'll get do that later. But he's significant because Fenrir Greyback gets to the point where he's so sadistic, he doesn't even try and turn. He bites people while in human form. Yeah. Bill being it's, his first victim. That line's one of Sharon's absolute favourites, the, the, the one that Fleur gives. Sharon? Can't remember the exact line, but that scene is very key to Fleur's character for me. They use him as a figurehead of fear in this film because he was quite prominent in the book. Mm. And ultimately, this one scene is about fear. In June of 97, during the Battle of the Astronomy Tower, Bill was brutally savaged by the werewolf Fenrir Greyback, but fortunately not at a full moon, so Bill did not become a werewolf, though he did inherit some wolf-like qualities. I don't know what that means. Fleur rushed to Hogwarts with Bill's parents and was shaken by Bill's scarred face. However, Fleur railed at Mrs. Weasley's assumption that she would not now want to marry Bill since he was no longer attractive. Taking offence, she criticised both the idea that she would not wish to marry him out of vanity and that his feelings may have changed towards her because of possible werewolf contamination. In fact, she took pride in his wounds as living proof of his bravery and stated that she didn't care about how he looked as she was beautiful enough for both of them. So, yeah, there's that bit. I kind of wish they'd left that in. But uh, at the same time, it would have had to require quite a whole extra action scene, explanation for why Bill was there, getting Fleur in there, and ultimately they, they do manage to get the nature of that in there yeah. at the beginning of, of Film 7. And the uh, the Lupin and Tonks relationship gets sort of referenced here. It's... um. It's it's very muted. It's very uh, somebody somebody pointed out that uh, her hair, you know, is, uh, is is not its usual bright pink, and uh, it, she never explains why. And it's because it's a film. It's because you can see that things are very serious and dark, and she has short cropped brown hair because she's not in a very you know bright fuchsia mood. It, it's almost like there's a whole extra film of drama. That, that took place between the tertiary characters in the Harry Potter universe um, that we, we never really got to see, but, uh, but would, would still have been fascinating nonetheless. In the film, the pair of them are presented as if they are already a couple. I, th- I swear that as they're leaving the burrow, she says, you know, mm. what, what is it, darling? And yeah. We're going to have to go there. Whereas in the book, she's quite sad and forlorn all the way through the book, and her Patronus has changed to become a... looks like a dog. And Harry assumes that it's because she's upset because Sirius died, because she was related to Sirius as well, because of the yeah. whole inbred wizarding families. Um, and it turns out, no, it's changed because she has fallen in love with Remus Lupin, and it's only at the end that she declares that. But here they just skip straight to the they are a couple, which I, is a change I don't mind. Yeah, I could see that being a smart decision, since there's not a lot of time to set it up in the next yeah. two films either, and, yet, and it kind of ma- and it matters then. So... They need to kind of go ahead and get that moved along. And I like that even though we're not, we're not even getting, we're not seeing kind of what is going on behind the scenes with a lot of these tertiary characters, you can really feel that worn down stress tension. You can, yeah. you can tell that all of these other, the, the Weasley parents and a lot of the other uh, adult wizards are dealing with a lot of stuff on the side that we're not seeing. Yeah, Arthur and uh, Molly seem to have aged 20 years yeah. at this point. Mm-hmm. Since, since we saw them last, um, they're, they're, they're no longer the cherry-cheeked, you know, figures of fun they used to be. Certainly, Arthur. Like when you, when you see him in um, in the, he's deflated. The, yeah, he's very deflated, very drained. He's like, we're being watched, and he's you know like, oh yes, and uh, he's got this kind of grave tone to him, which is complete contrast to how we met him. Yeah. You know, the your sons took their car. Did they really? How'd it go? You know, it's just, where they just poised and and this bottled up excitement is completely gone from Arthur Weasley by this point. 
and there's a there's a wonderful delivery of a single line when uh, when the burrow gets uh, set on fire and he turns around and just goes Molly, but he's not going no Molly. He's, it's just like he's just focused. He's like I need yeah, to save my wife. Totally. Interestingly mirrored in the resolve of his daughter. Mm. And there we go. <laughs> I was in the library that night, in the restricted section, and I read something rather odd about a bit of rare magic. It's called, as I understand it, a Horcrux. I beg your pardon? Horcrux. I came across the term while reading, and I didn't fully understand it. I'm not sure what you were reading, Tom, but, but this is very dark stuff, very dark indeed. Which is why I came to you. There's there's a bit which he mentions that, you know, pineapple, thank you very much for remembering. They never go into it, but it's fairly, I mean, if you read between the lines, Tom's drugged with Veritaserum, the pineapple, so that he can get the whole truth out of Slughorn. When, in the, the later memory, when it's revealed, Slughorn just sort of gives him the information, almost like it's being pulled out of his, his, his mouth. Like, not, like, not like he's trying to convey it but just like he must say it it's it's handled very well and they they never mention it but here's the thing if he was drugged there's less to feel guilty about but he never hangs on to that he never goes i was drugged it wasn't my fault he never mentions it it's almost like he's feeling guiltier than he needs to it it shows that it gives a little bit adds a little bit more to that weakness of uh of slughorn's portrayal and this that we've talked about before but it also kind of makes it clear that look, look it helps to establish that, look, Voldemort wasn't always the super creepy kid that everyone was scared of. He was like, you could actually be really, like, you don't know what he was like back then. Like, you, you could actually be, like, really uh, charismatic. He could be really mm. convincing, a really, like, intelligent. And it's, and one of the kids that uh, uh, Slughorn really respected, it was like, in the Slug Club, really, like, uh, it completely makes sense in the film, even if it is a kind of differently portrayed. And then you get the uh, poisoning scene with uh, with poor Ron and uh, the the Bezoar. They don't really make a, a big deal out of this, but I think does Harry remember this because it was the, one of the first things Snape asked him. Uh, it's, that's the excuse he gives when when asked why he thought of a Bezoar, but it's actually because it's written in the di- in the book of the Half Blood Prince. Ah. It's one of the many things that you know because he reads the book over and over and over again. It just sticks with him. Right. Um, that it's it's a note from the Half Blood Prince. They don't really make too much out of the whole, here is the central fallacy of the Half-Blood Prince. It's, he's kind of a, a bit part character because when you've read the entire full thing, it's not all that important who the Half-Blood Prince is or why the Half-Blood Prince is. Ultimately, Snape's mother's name was Prince. Yeah. That's but, all we really need to know. But of course what, it was Snape's diary. He's good at potions. But I tell you what, no, that annoyed me. That, that annoyed me. Another reason why I, 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 this film irritates me is because, like, yeah, I, I'll admit, the Half-Blood Prince isn't essential to the storyline, but it is the title figure. Mm. And they do not go into it at all. Apart from a great moment when they're on the way to um, Hogsmeade. It's like, well, you didn't want to know anything more, but I did. So I went to the library. <laughs> the way that both of them finish that sentence is fantastic. There's loads of conversations in the book about who is this prince, why do you trust him, blah, blah, blah. And there's but just, we know who I, the prince know, is. We've seen it. We've read it. I know we've read it. I know, it, it I know, ultimately doesn't turn out to be important. I know it the doesn't. reason it's called the Half-Blood Prince is it's because it's about the terrible thing that Snape has to do. I know. 
but it just irritates me that all it would have taken what would be a a two minute conversation, a two minute conversation saying it would have been you know like you know there's bits in the book where they say oh it's obviously someone that's proud of their muggle side, so maybe there's someone called Prince, and then it turns out that Snape's mother was called Prince, and blah blah blah, and. I know it's not it's not majorly important, but the fact that they cut it out completely is that when Snape turns and I am the half blood prince, it's that that point is like, oh yeah, that's what this film is called. Oh yeah, that's what the book is about. It's like it's com- you completely forget it. It's completely relevant, and I. You do because you're you're talking about this from the perspective of someone who's read it. How about the people who who haven't? People who haven't, like, would be like, well, this is the thing. People who haven't, when he says, I am the Half-Blood Prince, people who haven't read the book would be like, right, yeah. what was the Half-Blood Prince again? Oh, it was that book back earlier. Like, it's just, <laughs> it was, that book which we got rid of about an hour ago. But all of the Harry Potter movies have kept this kind of, the, the, the big reveals very much in kind of a look. If you know it, you know it. If you don't then it's not going to be like a Kaiser Soze moment in the film. I think, no, it's, I, there's, I think there's more about seeding curiosity about Snape's character in it as well, though, because even in, in the almost throwaway manner that it's delivered in the film, and I agree, the way they, they put it out there, it's like, well, it's we don't think it's really all that important. Um, but he's admitting that he's a half-blood, and we know that Voldemort hates that. So it kind of, it, it ties that whole thing together and, and in a way might start people thinking about, well, if we didn't know that about Snape, what else don't we know about him? What more could there be to his character? And then obviously that sets up the big hit at the end. So from that angle, I think it, it works the way it's done. One of the uh, characters uh, excised from the book who ended up having to be um, pasted into the early part of film seven, just so we'd remind the audience who he was. Dobby. Dobby should have been in, in uh, book six. As should have a creature. In fact, yeah. again, to go back to the, the lack of Dursleys, that's where Harry inherits creature, because creature is left to yeah. him in Sirius's will. For criminal pleasure. Which is why, again, another disservice to film seven... In film seven, in film seven, so the film version, there is no reason why creature should have to answer Harry's questions, and yeah. he just, but he just Harry sounds forceful. In the books, in book seven, he is magically forced. bound to answer and do whatever Harry says, so it's not possible for him to conceal anything from Harry. Doesn't Hermione? I, I may be remembering this wrong, but doesn't Hermione get really angry with Harry for not releasing creature? Yes, because it's a part of the running house elf liberation front mm, gang. Whereas Harry has taken the approach of it, he could come in really handy. And, and he does. And he does. And there's a, there's a lot more of the Malfoy, like Harry's obsession with Malfoy and spying on Malfoy. There's a lot yeah. more of that. And he actually gets both Dobby and Creature to spy on Malfoy all the time in this. Which leads us to Malfoy. Now this is going to be his, if not, what's the opposite of Shining Glory? Downfall. Darkening Tragedy. Um, the Harry versus Draco fight is, is actually genuinely upsetting. When he uses Sectumsemper on him, uh, you realise that he's gone so, so many steps too far by using something he didn't even understand what it was first. Um, uh, Draco was only using stunning spells on him. He, he didn't even get to use Crucio like he did in the book. And um, when he starts bleeding and Snape stands over him in a kind of a what-have-you-done way, 
Now, you understand that obviously Snape late, by, later on um, cares about Harry a lot, but he also cares about Draco. Mm. And so when he uses a healing spell, it's another, another side of, of, of Snape. But up to that point in the film, whenever you've seen Draco on his own, he is ashen white, he is riven and in turmoil, but holding it all inside. So while everyone else is distracting themselves with the, with the, you know, trying to do stuff at Hogwarts so that they can keep the whole terror of what's going to happen in the next year out, Draco doesn't have anything to distract himself with. He, he doesn't even get to be the seeker in the Quidditch team. He's just sitting on his own in a suit, looking in mirrors, um, wandering the hallways, going in and out of the room of requirement, you know, putting apples and, and, and birds in, into there. And, Draco has nothing left. He doesn't even have Crab and Goyle. He doesn't he even has, have Shaved Henchman number three. Doesn't even have Shaved Ape. Draco is a genuinely tragic figure in this series because um, he's been appointed as the chosen one for the other side. Uh, in, the, in the way that Harry has been told that he's got to kill Voldemort, Draco has been told he's got to kill Dumbledore. It, it's what he's been, it, been told he must do. And it must have been, and this is purely supposition, in a manner that left veiled threats uh, about his family. You could all learn a lot from this brave young lad, and surely the benefits will be reaped to his family, and the implications being, and if you don't do this, they're dead, as are you. And Draco's terrified this entire movie, and you genuinely feel that, and Tom Felton's acting goes up like tenfold in this one. He is incredible in this, I have to say. He is mm. really, really good in this one. Absolutely. After five movies of basically having nothing to do but like kind of come in and it's like, hey, uh, uh, hello, I'll be your insufferable bully this evening. <laughs> he, he, sudden, like, he suddenly, even in his early scenes on the train, like his bullying moments, there is a subtext underneath of just like, just kind of exhaustion and stress and fear. And like isolation. Yeah, and where it suddenly it feels actually like sort of real scary bullying almost. It's not just like I'm annoying and I hate you and I'm going to make your life miserable. It's actually kind of an actual like just like the breaking of the nose and things like that. You actually sense like there's something really bothering him. But I love the fact that um, Dumbledore in particular like never never gives up on him. So at the end when he like he almost talks um, Malfoy around to it, there's this implication that, that it's the whole Darth Vader there is still good in him. Thing and like and, and the you know it, it's it's mirrored perfectly in um, in the the track on the soundtrack Malfoy's Mission, which is essentially the music that keeps on turning up every time he goes to that cupboard and and deals with apples and birds. It's quite a dark brooding theme, but there's this high little soft melody. I think it's a flute or something, which is it's it's high enough to kind of sound light and almost say look there is hope for this person there's a there's a thin layer of hope in what he's doing because you just know that he he's not his heart isn't in it as as has been said mm. and he may not be a complete loss he, he may not be completely lost to the dark side there's a, there's a really interesting subtext in in this though that kind of builds up in the pieces that you get throughout this film uh, Slughorn talks about the uh, the act of creating a Horcrux with Tom, and he talks about you know the act of killing rips your soul, mm. and that's and and the the how horrified he is when he's talking about that um, kind of 
brings home what Draco's being asked to do. He is still effectively a child, and he's been asked to do something which is going to rip his soul apart. And Dumbledore wants to protect him from that. That's why he's um, kind of brought Snape in to whatever happens, to defend Malfoy, to protect him and to, to avoid him being put in that position and to avoid him having his soul to- torn. Now, Dumbledore has no such qualms about Harry. I know Voldemort has to be killed. I know he has to be destroyed. But ultimately, it it is said in this film over and over again, it's going to do massive damage if you have to kill somebody. And Harry is going to have to do it. And Dumbledore not only admits such, he is manipulating things so that Harry will be put in that position, Mm. which is quite disturbing about Dumbledore in a way and, and his, his machinations and his manipulations kind of really start to come to the fore in this one in a, a, a way that makes the character so intriguing almost so that at the end it's like there was so much more I wanted him to flipping explain himself for and now yeah. he can't and, 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 and that's brilliant because like, you know, it, it, it shows that he for all his machinations, he is he is a head teacher. He is a teacher, and he cares about his students. And he cares he cares more about Malfoy, like you say, like because Malfoy does not have to do this, and the, the, that is not part of his plan. His plan is that none of his students will suffer from this sort of situation or this sort of, you know, this sort of act, etc. But as you, you know, as you say, the uh, the whole idea that yeah, Harry, as they say in film eight, is being raised to die at the proper time. As much as Dumbledore says, you know, I still look at you and I see the boy from the cupboard, you equally know that he doesn't. He looks at Harry as a weapon, as a tool. He's almost a bullet point on Dumbledore's to-do list. Get Mm. child to kill baddie. Although Dumbledore couldn't possibly have orchestrated this, or couldn't possibly have known this, Harry doesn't kill Voldemort. Harry manages to get away from the entire series, having never actually killed anyone he disarms Voldemort he uses his signature move Expelliarmus yes in the same way as Vash the Stampede in Trigon very weird side tangent here has uh, resolved never to kill someone but goes into town blows the whole place to shreds and only uses his guns to disarm other people Harry disarms Voldemort and his, his Avada Kedavra rebounds on himself and it, depending on whether you're reading the book or the uh, film the fact that Nagini is killed is the last thing that, that allows his body to fall apart. So uh, even though Dumbledore couldn't have known that he was not going to actually have to kill Voldemort, Harry's soul remains intact. I feel like this Sectum Simpra scene is like one of the most successful like sequences in all of these films. It's one of my favorite scenes, period, and largely thanks to uh, Tom Felton's just phenomenal performance. I think that's like just the pinnacle of his performance in this entire series of films. But also, just I love this, as the fight starts, there is no music whatsoever. It is just really just quiet. You're just hearing the sounds of the the water and everything else. Just It is a really, it's a really powerful scene that watching, like, Chamber of Secrets and the early Potter films, I would never have expected to see mm-hmm. something like this. It's obviously, like, a really, like, serious, like, heavy moment, but also, like, filmed so well that just just hats off to these guys there's other scenes throughout the uh, the, the film where whenever draco's um, look you know on, on his own the blackness of his suit the whiteness of his hair screams hitler youth 
Everything about the way he's been uh, been been shot is the the young white blonde haired German child forced into a black shirt, forced to do terrible terrible things. He is not. It not, it's not a case of not being old enough to. He is not emotionally equipped enough to shut himself off to do. Mm. And um, there's a wonderful piece of set dressing, which no, no one's ever mentioned before. There is a birdcage within a birdcage in this, a giant circular cage with a cage inside it. Hogwarts is a cage and that uh, Draco is trapped in, but outside in the world, he is trapped in the world of the Death Eaters as well. Hog- Draco is one of these poor birds that is, it keeps being sent back and forth to do its task. Mm. And when the bird dies and, and he, he, you know, the cabinet's not working properly, that high note that you're talking about there, James, that pleading note is the bird song of Draco's soul, desperately stuck in this cage within a cage. Yeah. Such fantastic filmmaking. <laughs> in the film production, not in the book, not in the final film, but if you watch very carefully during some of the production footage, Draco could have, in the final version of film eight, broken away from the Death Eaters and run across to the side of Hogwarts at the exact point that Harry jumped out and stood up, uh, the exact point that Neville took, pulled out the sword of Gryffindor, and thrown Harry his wand it's a single shot in one of the production diaries, and uh, it's Tom Felton going, Potter! And running across, like, literally in front of Voldemort and throwing him his wand, because obviously, when they, apparently Harry's corpse was carried by Hagrid, they removed Draco's wand, which was on his person, gave it back to Draco, and Harry obviously needs to get it back. It was a move designed to give Draco something incredibly heroic and self-sacrificing to do. So, just at that point, boom, Boom, when everyone's looking at Neville and Neville's doing his incredible thing, Draco also realizes, oh my god, Potter is the only one who can, who can and stop this terrible thing happening. And he's alive. And he needs a wand. And I've got a wand. And my life ultimately is not as important as his. And he throws Harry his wand. And although it would have taken away somewhat from Neville's incredible moment, Really wish they'd done that. I love that. That was brilliant. That, yeah. I, I'm trying to think. That that sounds familiar. Like I, I swear there are other films or TV shows where the bad guy throws a weapon to the hero. Mm. And I can't think of any specific examples, but I know that's done been done before. And I would love to have seen that Draco Dio Potter, and, and just would have completely redeemed Draco's character in seconds. Because uh, all Voldemort would have to do would go you little and just. Avada Kedavra him in the back of the head before he even reached the lines of, of Hogwarts. But he's just so astonished that Harry's alive that, that somehow Draco manages to get in there uh, without a wand. So, I don't know, I don't know even how, how Draco could have fought on, on what side during that particular, uh, battle. But I think ultimately when it came down to it, they had to make sure that Neville still got his focus. There's a lot of people who are furious about what happened with, uh, with, with Neville's, um, scene anyway. Although I adore it in the film. Then, when they go to hide the book in the Room of Requirement, they leave out a fairly crucial bit uh, regarding uh, one of the Horcruxes. Mm. James? The diadem is in there. Yep. And uh, he passes it. This is the thing, isn't in film eight, it's like on top of a massive mountain of Things. stuff. And in, in, um, in the book, he just, he passes it, you know, it, 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 again, it's Joe Rowling, you know, Describing things and giving you a perfect hint towards it, but not actually saying explicitly, this is important, big sign over here. Yeah. Um, 
you know, I, I don't know why I was pointing at something there. Uh, <laughs> he, in the book, he passes a number of things. He lists them, you know, he passes a chair, a cabinet, a table, a pile of old books, a, head, a statue of a head, a bust of a head with a, a strange old tiara on it. Most but, busts are of heads. And obviously we learn that that is the diadem of uh, Rowena Ra- Ravenclaw. It's the same as she puts the locket casually into exactly, book Exactly, the lo- locket casually in, into book five. And, and it's a shame they didn't do that. I, you know, you only needed Since the seventh the book had come out, there's no excuse for them not to go. Exactly, and exactly. And again, it's just it's more disservice to... You know, the, and, and again, you know, it's, it's one of those things you can't quite convey in the books. Like in, in the books, like... Um, in the final one where he goes into the room of requirement and he, 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 he's looking for it and he remembers the headset that he so the headpiece that he saw the tiara that he saw he remembers it and he's looking specifically for that rather than just looking for a head yeah, yeah a, a head thing yeah. um However, the grey lady tells him in the, in the film, I don't know if she tells him in the book, it's in the place that you don't need to find until you need to find it. Like, you know, you know, people are dying here, grey lady, you know, time's a factor, we don't need a riddle at this point. Yeah. <laughs> Women requirement, okay, that, just, just say that. <laughs> it is... It. it is very much Joe's style of writing, though, that she, she floods you with all this information and it is up to you mm. to absorb it and pick out the bits that are important or remember the bits that are important later on. Yeah, and but in the films they can't do that. They can only give you they what's can important. Do it, they can do it visually. They mm. can have stuff in the background like Aberforth in the pub. Or um, uh, Ollivander being kidnapped. Yep. Yeah, um, but they can't sort of put big neon sign finger pointing you may want to remember this for later <laughs> on because it would be a little bit crap well they, they do do that especially in the earlier ones but um but yes, like, the later ones become more crap. skillful and like you know you know harry i could fly a helicopter i wonder when you're going to be flying a helicopter later. Do they mention peanut allergies do at any point they mention <laughs> peanut well, this is a pretty um, blue diadem. I wonder who this bust is of. <laughs> what is it, that diadem? It's hanging on that raven's claw. <laughs> uh, oh. uh, no, I, I actually will still agree, though. Like, I think it does. There's lots of things that are left out of the films that I don't think hurt the that I don't think hurt them. But there, I think it would have added a little ex- something extra to know the significance of the Horcruxes to, yeah. to know, at least know that there was some at least some trimmed down level of the significance of the horcruxes and part and part of what makes it so them so fun in the books is knowing how they've been cleverly woven into the other books up until that point and i think that is something where that the film would have been made better by it's 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 almost like that they don't even know what horcruxes are the filmmakers don't even know what horcruxes are until uh tom riddle says it in the revealed thing, they're like, oh, Horcruxes, we probably better put a few of those in. <laughs> exactly, yeah. My, my general criteria is there are certain things that can make the book better that don't hurt the films to not have. But generally, if it would have made it a better film as a film, that's generally what my criteria are for like saying that should have been in there. I think that's one area where the last two films, or three, I guess, however you want to put it, are, are hurt just a little bit. I think the, the problem with trying to assess it, having read the books, albeit some time ago and in the case of the later ones only once so I'm, I will concede that there are massive chunks of them that I have forgotten it's difficult to know when you pick up on certain things whether you've picked that up purely from the film or whether it's because you know the backstory and so with things like the Horcruxes you know I'm, I'm kind of watching films 7 and 8 thinking well 
yeah, it's sort of clear that that he's picked these things because they are prominent magical items, and he he feels really strong connections with the magical world. Have I got that entirely from the films, or have I got that because I've read the books? On that note, the kiss. The, this is again, we've talked about Ginny so much, but this is a really lovely, subtle moment, and it's the kind of subtlety and the kind of maturity that Harry really has been lacking for for most of his school years. Just, it's it's almost like, why didn't you get together with this girl ages ago? Because she was twelve. <laughs> why didn't you get together with this girl last year? Because <laughs> you were with Cho, the girl you've been chasing for two years before that. As much as I don't like the Harry Ginny thing for reasons that are my own and I even I don't completely understand, I do like the fact that this is about as far as it goes in the film and that it's so subtle and s- just brilliant. And it's her. It's her saying, that can, that can be a secret hint, stay here you know, and stay in here too if you like. It's just very well done. What happens in the room of requirement stays <laughs> in the room of requirement. And I just, I like, I like this moment. Despite the fact that I hate the situation, right? and I love Ron's follow-up line in the immediate next scene. So, did you do it then? What? Yes. Then there's the luck quest, as I like to call it. Uh, Felix Felicis, uh, also known as Liquid Luck, also known as the Luck Virus from off of that episode of Red Dwarf, Quarantine, uh, also known as a bottle of concentrated narrative contrivance. Now, uh, Joe likes to work with this all the time, but in this case, it's almost like she said, look, Harry needs to find out a lot of stuff very quickly, so let's just have him drink it and then find out. Uh, although in the book, doesn't he only drink a few drops and he, he, he gives the rest to Ron and Hermione later or something? Doesn't yes, he? he does. Yeah. Um, and it, I don't know if it's, if it's in the book, but Dan Radcliffe mimics the way that Jim Broadbent plays Slughorn when he talks to him. It's almost like he needs to lull him into a, a sense of security, so he, he, he mirrors him. He, he has a little hunch of the shoulder... And, it, 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 and, and sort of, well, by all means, come along, sir. He's genial and he's sort of, you know, sort of wavy, and, and he confuses the hell out of him. But it's enough to put him just off his guard for that crucial moment. I didn't in the book pick up on any dramatic change in Harry's character, but I do like yeah. the fact that essentially Harry is playing. Daniel Radcliffe is playing this drunk, drunk, yes, yeah. drunk Harry. Yes, and I quite like that. It's, it's quite, it's, it's really done well. And the pincers. <laughs> yeah, I love that, and that moment. And that cheerful little hi to the guys, to the other kids as he walks out of the door. I do, I do like that. I, I do like the whole drunk thing. Um, again, it's another point where, like, certainly Aragog's funeral, where you can really see the colour has been bleached out. Yeah. Is it me? I, I was going to say, does Aragog seem smaller, or is that just because oh, Harry's God. bigger? It's because his legs aren't all twitchy and spread out and huge, and he's, yeah, he's just, one way up, even, and he's dead, and he's not moving. Even the body looks smaller but again I, I, I guess that's because Harry has essentially doubled in size since he's his second year he's a spider yeah I know a big, big spider it's done. I just I love that and, big I, enough and Jim's Jim's delivery Jim Broadbent's delivery of the um, the funeral oh, well. is Aragog it's like just it's was your spirit does live on it's just this kind of you can tell he's had to do this sort of thing before but just doesn't it goes all Hovis advert yeah. <laughs> it does doesn't yes. it it does go Hovis advert <sighs>
Then after the, the, the that, and it cuts to the the, the hut and, and Hagrid's. There's another creation for the film, Francis the Fish. It was a student who gave me Francis. On spring afternoon, I discovered a bowl on my desk. Just a few inches of clear water in it. Floating on the surface was a flower petal. As I watched, it sank. Just before it reached the bottom, it's transformed to a wee fish. Just beautiful magic, wondrous to behold. The flower petal had come from a lily. Your mother. The day I came downstairs, the day the bowl was empty. Mr. Dale, mother. I know why you're here. But I can't help you. It would ruin me. Do you know why I survived, Professor? The night I got this? Because of her. Because she sacrificed herself. Because she refused to step aside. Because her love was more powerful than Voldemort. Don't say his name. I'm not afraid of the name, Professor. I'm going to tell you something. Something others have only guessed at. It's true. I am the chosen one. Only I can destroy him, but in order to do so, I need to know what Tom Riddle asked you all those years ago in your office, and I need to know what you told him. Be brave, Professor. Be brave like my mother. Otherwise, you disgrace her. Otherwise, she died for nothing. Otherwise, the bowl will remain empty forever. Please, don't think badly of me when you see it. You've no idea what he was like even then. It's heartbreaking the way Broadbent puts it across, and it, it does a total credit to Steve Clovis, uh, the, the, the writer, who, who really manages to sort of conjure up, no pun intended, little moments that complement... Joe's stories and really genuinely could have happened. Uh, this is one of those, and I, I just think it's, it's just a lovely little vignette of something yeah. that, that he could actually have done. I love that and it implies that there's somehow, like, for some people, can, are, are almost artists with magic. Like, there's an mm. artistry to it that he can just create something that's just really beautiful and original, and no one, like, it's not just some spell that's in a book that everybody learned that you can do something like that. I just, it's a, it's kind of a side touch sort of thing, but I really love that implication. So Horcruxes, and now we're playing for real. And it, I love the fact that he just gives him the memory, and it just cuts straight to Dumbledore's office, and there's no messing around, no interim scene where Harry's sort of going up the stairs. Uh, I, I don't know if in the book there was a long bit where Harry had it in his pocket and he's working out what to do. He just goes, no, straight to the pensive, straight away, let's find out what this thing is. And um, the way Slughorn in the memory defines um, your soul being trapped in, a, in an object... 
Uh, it means effectively you wouldn't die. That's a very skewed and flawed viewpoint on the notion of what dying actually is. It's like saying, well, you'd be in a coma of sorts. You know, you'd be trapped in an object. Mm. Wouldn't that be nice? It's Again, it's the fundamental misunderstanding on Voldemort's part that there aren't worse things than dying. It's the ceasing to be that terrifies him so much. Again, we've, we've talked in the earlier podcasts about uh, the psychology of Tom and how his... Um, you know, the ignoble circumstances of his birth and how he grew up in a, you know, this institution where he had nobody to love him. That's the cliched, I suppose, formation of the, the sociopath mentality, that it's this um, fear that they don't really exist. And because they've never had that reflection of the person who loves them, assuring them that they do exist, that they are real and that they will continue to exist he's obsessed with the idea that if he ceases to be, he will never have been. And that's what he's really, really terrified of, that that he is not. And of course, um, Voldemort has found ways to kind of, ex- I, I assume it's Voldemort extending what a Horcrux can do, mm. but he's found ways to come back through his Horcruxes. Case in point, the Tom Riddle's diary. Mm. Had he successfully drained all of the life from Ginny, he, mm. Voldemort would have been alive again, Fully fledged, not in a coma and in an object, but actually a fully fledged, you know, alive Voldemort. And I like to think that the locket would have been similar, given that we saw that the locket was accentuating the, um, you know, and, and exaggerating the kind of the negative aspects of Ron and Harry and Hermione's um, personalities. I think that if you spent enough time with that against your your chest, then you would eventually become maybe not as as fully as the diary, but you would eventually become a a version of Voldemort. You'd become a vessel. You'd a take vessel, on so yeah. many of his yeah. personality traits as to almost be his, yeah, his, exactly, yeah. his twin. Well, the intention with the diary almost seems that um, that the, the the shard of Tom that was in the diary was actually going to become flesh. Mm. Um, in Goblet, they have to create the flesh for him. Yeah. Um, there's a the, the the ritual that they do with the cauldron and everything. They they are creating this body for him. Um, and I think yeah, we, when you're talking about the locket, it, it seems that that would have been more of a possession sort of thing. Isn't there something about um, he he the bit of his soul that remains out of the Horcruxes actually goes into Nagini at one point? Um, I think, yeah, he, he is able to possess her for a while before he makes her a fully-fledged Horcrux. Oh, it's before, right, okay, no, yeah. that's fine. He makes her a Horcrux he, once he then he have has... two bits of his soul in her, but no, that's fine if it's before he does it. Oh, no, hang on, he makes her a Horcrux uh, when he kills Bertha Jorkins before he has a body, but after he's a weird, fleshy baby fetus creature at the beginning of uh, Goblet. Right, okay, yeah, that's... That explains okay. that. Then. Now, there's something that I want to actually get started as a debate on the um, uh, the forums as to whether the possibility of it is, because I was going to save it to ask you to mention for film eight, but it's worth mentioning as a theory right now, uh, Sharon. Joe has mentioned that she's going to tell people what it takes to make a Horcrux, and uh, that she's been keeping it a secret for many, many years. Uh, she told her publisher once, and he felt like he was going to be sick afterwards, uh, which is a nice bit of marketing. But... Um, um, Sharon had a theory on what it would actually take to uh, create a Horcrux. And it ties in with what happened with Harry in uh, uh, Godric's Hollow. I think 
part of it, and obviously there's going to be much more uh, long and involved process than simply this, but I think part of it is going to involve casting Avada Kedavra on yourself so that you can you effectively um, kill the, the bit of your soul that then leaves your body. Or at least cut off a bit of yeah, yourself. Well, I, the idea of you, a Vada Kedavra, if you cast it on a person directly, it flings their soul out of their body. Yeah. But if and you if, do it in a concentrated scalpel-like motion to part of your soul... That well, that, that, I think, is where the uh, the murder beforehand comes in. Um, <laughs> because if the, if the act of killing tears your soul apart, your soul, as the, there is then a piece of your soul which is theoretically separate from what remains. So if you then cast a Vada Kedavra on the piece of soul that's been torn off by the murder, knock that piece out of your body and then capture it in an object, mm. that seems like a process that fits logically with the actions that occur. So in, in uh, what happened, working on this theory, what happened with Harry um, that night in um, Godric's Hollow, he murders... Lily, in very cold blood, um, you know, she's she's basically put herself in front of her son and said, please don't kill him. And he murders her in extremely cold blood. That would segment his soul. Um, and then when he casts the Avada Kedavra on Harry, it rebounds and knocks that bit of his soul out of himself when he didn't intend it to do so. And then, because there's no object that's been prepared to receive that part of his soul, it latches onto a living thing, which is Harry. Interesting. It'd be interesting to see how close that is to Joe's final definition when when it finally comes out. If it is close, Joe, don't sue me. It was just a theory. I'm sure other people will have guessed something along the same lines. I reckon so, too. Now, the bits in the astronomy tower, before we round up to the cave, you do get that wonderful uh, piece of uh, dialogue from uh, Dumbledore. I don't know enough if this is in the book, but just like your mother, you're unfailingly kind, a trait people never fail to undervalue, I'm afraid. It's almost like something identical to what Lupin said in film three. It's a line that makes me want to be kind to people. Mm. It's an inspiring line, and I love the fact that he, he gets to say that in this. And every time I feel that like I'm not being kind to someone, that comes back and haunts me, and I think, yeah, I could be doing more than this. There's a, there are several other visual effects, that the design of which in this film I especially like. The uh, pensive ink in water look is phenomenal. Yeah. And the uh, flames to come in, in this cave are some of the most like well-designed, like really impressive custom flame effects digitally produced that I've seen in a film to, to date. As a true animator speaking. <laughs> yeah, no, it was just, I mean, it, you've seen, like, really cool, plenty of great realistic-looking flame in other uh, in other films and all that, but uh, just that some of those shots, like, of uh, Dumbledore kind of standing atop the little rock, it's a little rock island there, just with the flame swirling around, it's just, like, really artfully composed and just really well done. Obviously not realistic flame behavior, but just very well designed. So then we get to the cave. This is, to me... One of the most awful, horrifying moments in any story that I've ever read. Uh, quite apart from the, 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 the implications of how this thing got here and how this amount, this amount 
of Inferi, because if you look very carefully when the, uh, the, the scene is illuminated, there are thousands underwater mm. of this many people have actually ended up there, all of them dead. So the scene with the potion, though, works for me on so many other levels. I don't even know if Joe intended this, but when Dumbledore starts uh, to drink, your good health, Harry, starts to drink it and starts to lose himself, it seems to me very much to evoke the the terrible burden and the terrible... The word burden doesn't even work. The nightmare of caring for somebody who you used to know and is slipping away and slips away in front of Harry before his very eyes within minutes rather than years and it's the the, the, the terrifying for, I don't know maybe this just affects me more than a lot of other people but the notion of my loved ones losing their minds is, is genuinely scary to me and uh, not, not just in a sort of you know, what am I to do about this? But I, I just don't want them to go, not while they're still here, if you know what I mean. If they die like that, that's fine. Don't pity the dead, Harry. Pity the living. That's fine. But if they're anchored to the world and their minds are going, the notion of caring for an exceptionally elderly, exceptionally sick uh, member of my family, it, it, it requires strength I'm not even sure I have. And, what ha- and Harry being f- forced through this and forced to inflict this harm upon Albus uh, is so heartbreaking and this to me is almost the saddest part of the entire series you know let alone everything to do with Lily let alone everything to do with Snape the fact that Harry has to do this to, to, to Albus the strength required to put him through it it's, it's astonishing and the the pain that Albus has to go through for for nothing ultimately for, for a trinket which, which, which equates to nothing for another MacGuffin else at another time this, it's tragic on many many levels yeah I agree absolutely and the one thing that was kind of left out and, and, and I will I'm fine with it because it wasn't kind of essential is at one point he actually says no don't don't let me hurt them don't let me hurt them no, no, he's saying, don't let me hurt, he's saying, don't hurt them, hurt me. Yes. He's talking to, Gilbert yeah, we're going to talk about this one in, uh, in film eight. He's talking to Geller Grindelwald, uh, during a duel he was having with Aberforth and Oriana got in the way and Gellert was torturing both his brother and his sister and he was saying, don't hurt them, hurt me. Yeah. And this dreadful guilt that he's been carrying around for all these years. It would have complicated matters, and it would have had to have been followed up in the last film with Dumbledore admitting to Harry, when they're at King's Cross, that he'd lied about the Mirror of Erisad. In the very first film, he says, um, you know, with his wonderful old Richard Harris, no depth to the character whatsoever, I would see myself with a pair of socks. Yeah. <laughs> Aren't I cuddly? He would see his family alive, well, happy, and restored. Because he is carrying around the feelings that he has led to their utter destruction and decimation. 
That fits perfectly with where Dumbledore's gone as a character, though, because he, like you said, James, you could assume that he's talking about his students and, and being willing to put himself out there to protect them and, and take whatever um, harm is meant for them. But that's because of what he went through as a young man and, and what he he still carries the guilt of that and therefore he's he will replay that situation over and over again and sacrifice himself for each and every student, I think, because of that, because he can never sacrifice himself for Ariana. It has to be drunk. All of it has to be drunk. You remember the conditions on which I brought you with me? This potion might paralyze me. Might make me forget why I'm here. I've caused me so much pain that I beg for relief. You are not to indulge these requests. It's your job, Harry, to make sure I keep drinking this potion, even if you have to force it down my throat. Understood? Why can't I drink it, sir? Because I'm much older, much cleverer, and much less valuable. Your good health, Harry. Professor. Professor. Remember? Still, it will stop, Professor. It will stop. But only, only if you keep Please. drinking. Don't make me. I'm sorry, Don't. sir. Kill me! No. I promise I'll do what you say. I promise. Please. It's a really successful frightening scene overall like so much so that after it's over that whole section and the section of, of harry like trying to find water and all that is almost more scary and upsetting even than the infrared coming up to attack yeah. like that's 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 almost a relief after after seeing that other bit just things that can drown you and pound you and bite you and tear you to shreds you can deal with yeah, but, we've, but we've seen that sort of thing. Granted, it, we haven't seen it quite this like kind of haunting and like creepy, but uh, we've seen scary forces of evil that Harry has to fight. We haven't seen this sort of like really upsetting scene. It's emotional torture, absolutely. Yeah. 
and it's intended to 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 rob the person who is to be sacrificed of any form of life. I I I'd always had my doubts about how what life you could claw back once you'd actually drunk that potion. Creature does seem to be able to heal in some way in book seven, after Harry accepts him and 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 gives him the uh, the black family heirloom back and gives him a life. Um, but I. I Especially the way it's portrayed in the book after Dumbledore's in the Astronomy Tower, he's a lot weaker and his mind is still elsewhere. And he's barely able to hold it together. He almost seems a lot more on the ball, almost like he's back to normal in the film. It seems like it, it seems to me like more like he's putting it on, like he knows how to kind of be his professorly kind of self. Hmm. But it it looks like he, I mean, I just see him as looking really unsteady, like he's kind of holding it together, but able to put on sort of a face for a... Uh, yeah. For Malfoy, and he kind of maintains that a little bit as the uh, as the uh, others come in. Oh yeah, yeah. It, it does seem to me like he's he's doing everything he can to not fall down right now. Yeah, um, and also I don't want to um, downplay the infrai actually. That the the references that they used for these guys, rather than just going with straight out zombies and going all oh, rotting flesh and their big teeth, they they looked at um, prisoner of war and concentration camp victims and genuinely upsetting file photography of, of people who had become emaciated and wasted away to nothing yet were still alive, and these sunken faced figures of just that they aren't malicious, they're just vacant. And the, the notion that they were once alive and are now these pitiful, wretched creatures, it actually brings to mind... The closest thing I can think of is something, a moment that happens in Gears of War 2 that is so emotionally out of step with the rest of the series. I haven't played Gears of War 3, actually, but uh, that, that's genuinely powerful in that. It's, it's an odd reference, but, um, but, but the notion of what being condemned to a fraction of life does to a, a creature... Uh, so yeah, and then you get that that wonderful moment of, of Dumbledore rising up and pulling the fire back out and saving Harry, and is you shall not pass. It is very much that moment, isn't it? <laughs> and I, I've made comparisons to Gandalf before uh, in this podcast, and somebody said that, that was admitting you know, they were only merely shallow comparisons. But I'd like to ask you this one thing: Who said all these long years we've known one another? Trust me. As you once did. Gandalf to Bilbo, or was it Dumbledore to Snape? Or was it both? Precisely. They converge on different, they've had different lives completely, different experiences entirely, but they, in terms of figureheads, and in terms of being put in charge of someone who has been given this terrible, terrible task, they are one and the same. Uh, there is a deleted scene in this film which I so badly wish had been uh, instated in the final version um, if you uh, have the blu-ray you can see it I don't know if it's on the DVD I think I know exactly what scene it is too it is the call scene yep that's exactly what I was thinking uh, I'm, I'm going to play some music now I'm going to play the whole song imagine at home there's a gathering storm above Hogwarts there are some people still awake even though it's late at night Draco who hasn't slept at all gets up knowing exactly what he has to do goes out to find and kill Dumbledore McGonagall looks up into the sky and figures that something is about to, to happen. Hermione and Ron are looking up into the sky. There is this wonderful, haunting, quiet, funereal music playing in the background and this terrible feeling that something is about to happen that is going to change Hogwarts forever. Then you get the scene at the Astronomy Tower. 
Now, I know that they would probably push for time. I know it would have maybe seemed self-indulgent, but it would genuinely have got the audience all sitting up and going, yeah, okay, right, you have my full attention at this stage. Yeah. And it would have, it's an important tone shift after the, the, the info eye and the fire and sort of just getting you back to the position of, okay, Hogwarts is now in danger and something's going to happen. But this is something that has been growing, is inescapable, that Dumbledore has to die. Oh, I watched that scene this, as well this uh, this morning, and then I actually went back and back to the film to that part to see like what it actually turned into. Because like watching it as a deleted scene, it is an amazing little sequence that like I was watching and thinking, why on earth would they cut this out? This is this is amazing. Watching it in the film, they did most of the shots are still there and preserved in kind of a briefer form. There's, they they've... take Hermione and uh, Ron out of it. Yeah, Hermione and Ron aren't in it. Uh, Snape's uh, bit. There's this kind of like, of course, Snape. How could I forget? He they've... is staring out the window, knowing what he's got to do. Yeah, they've got they've got the shot of him from the back, like kind of seeing the clouds in the wind in the window, but you don't get the shot like of seeing his face. Uh, and mirrored at the beginning of film eight. Yep, yep, and the. Uh, the music is there very, like, traces of it are there very subtly over some of the same shots. They do preserve the spirit of it, and I imagine they cut this probably, like, I imagine maybe seeing it all cut together, it may have maybe like, a lot of momentum, and then it kind of, like, this slowed it down a little too much right before it was about to pick up again. Maybe, I can see it maybe it just felt a little wrong in the pacing, possibly, as a reason for them cutting it, but I do miss a bit of the more slight tonal shift you get, because like, as, it, as it stands, you've got like huge wall of fire that Dumbledore just cast, and then it cuts straight to Malfoy awake in bed, which is yeah. a little sharp and sudden compared to what like seeing in that deleted scene compared to like how it would have been there. So uh, I can I can imagine they probably did have a good reason for leaving that out, but I wish it was still in, and I'm very glad that it's at least a deleted scene there because it's phenomenal. It's it's like an overview of a board, and each person is a piece, and they're being moved into place for yes. what they have to do. And along with the music and the song, which is beautiful.
when they're at the Astronomy Tower, there is a significant divergence between the book and the film in terms of what situation Harry is let into. They get back to the tower, Dumbledore says, go and find me Severus. And in the book, James? In the book, he is under his uh, invisibility cloak and Dumbledore paralyzes him when the Death Eaters arrive so that he cannot make himself known and therefore not get in danger. Yeah. And the moment that, that Dumbledore dies, he's able to move. And that's almost like, as, he, as he's later on, as he's running to Dumbledore's body, part of him's hoping that Dumbledore's okay, but he, he deep down he knows that the moment that he was able to move, it was because Dumbledore had been killed, yeah. rather than being sent downstairs to watch. Yeah. And also, specifically, uh, seeing Snape, and Snape, shh, mm keeping him quiet, and then going off and doing it. And Harry trusting Dumbledore's word, Dumbledore saying, find me Severus. Harry trusting Dumbledore, Dumbledore trusting Severus. And it changes the dynamic. And it's not necessarily a bad thing, either. Because it leaves Harry feeling like he could have done something. If he was paralysed, nothing he could do. But because he actively had to trust Snape, and he actively did not stop him, it leaves him with different feelings for the final two films. And I actually, on reflection, kind of like it a little bit more. It's almost a, another narrative contrivance. Right, you're invisible, you're paralysed, you can't do anything, you're just an observer. He spends so much of the book observing things going on. This is one thing that he observed and could actively have taken a part in. Mm. I don't, I, I don't object to this change too much because, like you say, yeah, it, 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 he, it's almost like the um, the Cedric Diggory swapping that it's Harry who says, "Let's go together," because then that guilt of Cedric's death is on Harry. Likewise, mm-hmm. more guilt of of Dumbledore's death is on Harry because Harry didn't do anything. Yeah. And it, the notion of trust comes in. He screams at Snape, "He trusted you, and I trusted him." Mm. Being in brackets. Yeah, and it, it, the the whole of the the fifth film when Aberforth is, is 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 shouting at him, how much do you even really know this man? And Harry has to ultimately admit somewhere inside himself he doesn't know Dumbledore. He doesn't know whether he trusts him. And Dumbledore's very very careful that he uses the fact that Draco's there to get as much information out of him as possible, so that Harry is as equipped as possible for the next book slash for the next film. I, and again, you get more information in terms of, ah, so I'm guessing you put Madame Rosmerta under the Imperius curse and you were the reason for the locket and you are the reason for the mead. And it's a bit more explicitly stated in the, um, yeah. in the book. It's kind of like Draco monologuing without having to monologue. Yes, essentially. My entire plan. He doesn't give up on Draco. He, he reminds him that Tom made all the wrong choices. And, and for a moment, in, like, in both the film and the book, for a moment I always do think that Draco's going to go back. Because mm. you can see in his eyes that he just... Because Draco knows that Dumbledore could... Dumbledore and Hogwarts could protect him. Yeah. But the fear of Voldemort's just that little bit too powerful. They could protect him. They can't protect his parents. Yeah. And deep down, even though his father must be a son of a bitch to him, he still loves his father, and he still wants to respect his father, and he still loves his mother. And that love is what separates him from Voldemort, Mm. which is what redeems him. Before Snape strikes the killing blow, you get Dumbledore saying, Severus, 
please. And it's really difficult to interpret it as anything other than please end this. Yeah. I don't know how anyone watching it could could have, have thought that it was a pleading for his life at that stage. It, it, it's brilliant because, and I'm so glad it was handled well in the film because, again, I, all of the books, as I've said before, were read by read out by my mother, so they will always be tainted, like kind of coloured by how my mum interpreted them. And my mum read that as him begging for life. I don't know if there was some sort of um, descriptive paragraph around it that implies that he was begging for life, but I always thought that no, if he if he knew that he was going to die, if he knew that his time was limited anyway, then he will have been, yeah, that's Severus, please do this so that Draco doesn't, and yeah. Gambon delivered those two words brilliantly It's not even so that Draco doesn't, he is in immeasurable amounts of pain at that point, yeah. he has maybe days left to live with this curse mm-hmm. as well, he has lived 115 years, he has got guilt, he is tired yeah, he's known this day is coming, and and people do reach that stage. Like um, my uh, my nan's been in hospital recently, um, and she's eighty three, and it got to the point where we weren't sure if she was going to make it. And mum was saying that yeah, there were just points where she's like, you know, just let me go. It, it's time, let me go. And people do reach that stage, and that's the moment that Dumbledore reaches. Draco. Years ago, I knew a boy who made all the wrong choices. Please let me help you. I don't want your help. Don't you understand? I have to do this. I have to kill you. He's going to kill me. what we have here. Well done, Draco. Good evening, Bellatrix. I think introductions are in order, don't you? Love to, Elvis. But I'm afraid we're on a bit of time. schedule. Do it! He doesn't have the stomach, just like his father. Let me finish him in my own way. No! They downplay the fighting and the skirmish oh. and the sacking of Hogwarts, which I think uh, infuriated me originally, because I remember there being a, a full battle. Yeah, a pitched battle in Hogwarts. This there. is my... And it's, it's obvious why they didn't now. Mm, I'm, yeah. I'm actually grateful for that change. I, go, I, James, I, no, go. This is my biggest point of contention with this film. The biggest point of contention for all the Ginnies and the, 
Snape's and the Half-Blood Prince, is this is the point that really disappoints me about this entire film. Okay. I'm not going to fight particularly in the favour of what they did instead, but James, go for it. In the book, Harry rallies Dumbledore's army, who haven't had much to do, Mm. and get them to say, look, just keep an eye out, because I get the feeling that something's going to happen. He gives the Felix Felicis what's left of it to Ron and Hermione, who share it around Dumbledore's army, and, you, and they actually say you know, like, the count, curses were bouncing you know, off the walls next to them, rather than hitting them. They also call in the Order of the Phoenix, Tonks, Lupin, the Weasleys, they're all there. The auras that have been protecting Hogwarts all the way through, and as we discussed earlier, have been shown in the school grounds, are there, because Death Eaters come and there's a massive battle, not as big as the Battle of Hogwarts that occurs at the end of the seventh book and the, and the entirety of the eighth film. Yeah. But it is still a big moment. And, he, and, and the point is that the Death, Death Eaters have to fight their way out, having killed Dumbledore. In the book, that is not only downplayed, it's just completely undermined. Because there's what no is meant to be a battle and is meant to be a crucial kind of attack on Hogwarts. And you see all these characters, kids to auras to parents, fighting to protect this school. What you actually see in the film is Death Eaters just walking out, unchallenged, apart from one boy chasing after them. Bellatrix doing a bit of what can be described as nothing other than petty vandalism. Mm -hmm. Just breaking windows, kicking glass, and setting Hagrid's heart on fire. We've seen that there are auras there. We've seen that the school is better protected. The, they would not have such an easy way out. They would not be able to just waltz out having just murdered Albus Dumbledore. I would defend that decision overall for a few different reasons. First, I mean, the reason that I, mean, that I think has been given, like I think I read on Wikipedia somewhere, is that they didn't want it to kind of like feel too doubled like double things up too much with the last film because it is basically the same thing rally all, rally everybody to fight the death eaters and have a big war obviously on a much smaller scale in this story but but still I can I can understand that reasoning but also I think to maintain the tone and the emotion which have they've we've just gone through a very big emotional thing and which has culminated in Dumbledore's death and I think after that if you have a big rally everybody to fight you lose track of you you uh, lose or kind of forget that emotion yeah. for a little while, and you cut suddenly a big fight and an exciting thing, and rally everybody and triumphant. We forced them out. We forced them out, and then you have to go back and all of and see and Dumbledore dead and all that, and all of that emotional weight is lost. I think you need the it's us to feel at our absolute lowest point here. Everybody is like gone to their houses. A few, what horrors are left just got like whisked, just got up stunned or killed or whisked out of the way the death eaters have just come and completely desecrated this place they killed the leader they just befouled this hall they just tore up everything and and just walked out and got away with it and they've completely they've hit us where we live and and this the tread and then harry chasing out after snape with just the tragedy and the loss and then it immediately goes back to everyone coming out and gathering and seeing and seeing what's just happened. I think that had, has a lot more emotional weight, and I think it was a much wiser... De- I think it was a wise decision f- for a change for them to make for the film. And instead we get the Lumos Vigil, which is, again, uh, a wonderful, mournful upswell of emotion and a fitting tribute to Albus, because we don't get his funeral. Uh, again, there's, there's reasons why they, they, they didn't. I think mostly, at this point, um, they wanted to sort of leave you with the... the, the Empire the Strikes Back kind of ending. Yeah. Yeah, they, they didn't want to just sort of dwell on the, the corpse 
at that point. They, they wanted to just focus on the actual, the, 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 the fact that the Lumos Vigil actually chases away the Dark Mark is very significant. And it lightens up the sky. The implication there that exactly as Neville said, that while the people that have inspired us and the people that have brought us together may, may pass, that that we can carry on without them. And I'm just going to say a final note before we go. Uh, the quiet and subtle music of Nicholas Hooper, uh, who scored both this and Phoenix. They're probably not the best scores of, uh, of all of the, uh, the Potter films. He's probably not going to be remembered for too many of his themes. Most of them were more mood evoking. Most of them were more just sort of subtle, sort of in the background hints and notes and things. But there are, are moments of, of, of genuine subtlety and, and genuine emotion that he, he manages to, to really capture, uh, which is at a crucial point in the Harry Potter series, uh, managed to really play very, very well with Yates' direction. And I, just, I hope I do his, uh, his work justice by putting it through these uh, podcasts. That, that I do like Nicholas Hooper's scores. Like you say, like they, they, they don't stand out in the way that, say, Patrick Doyle's or obviously John Williams's do, mm-hmm. but the fact that they're so... They are the ambience for all the moments... And they, they are just there in the background and you're, you're completely aware of the music, but it does not take away from what is happening. Whereas like, you know, certainly John Williams sometimes, and to a lesser extent Patrick Doyle, the music was sometimes bigger than what was going on on screen. Here, yeah. the music is, is literally there to complement and kind of support what is going on on screen. And it's brilliant. Particularly the final track, um, yeah. The Friends which is almost like it's the breaking of the fellowship. It's the equivalent to the breaking of the fellowship by Howard Shaw mm. with this kind of warm but tragic um, theme that, that does sum up friendship, but friendship that is about to be tested by extremely dark times and stuff that could threaten to you know, part them. It's that last moment of we are here together Together we are committing to doing something, but this is what may end of the three of us. And Harry says, I'm going off to get the Horcruxes on my own. And Ron and Hermione say, of course you are, sir, and we're coming with you. Yeah. And yeah, no, absolutely. As I said at the very beginning, this is the Horcrux trilogy. I hadn't realized until watching it yesterday that this really is the fellowship of... Uh, if it, this is when the Harry Potter films really in earnest start the beginning of the end at the same time. This is a fellowship, and the death of Dumbledore and the death of Gandalf are a perfect emotional cause of each story. And the broken, what am I going to do now, 
moment for both Frodo and Harry at the end of these films without their mentor, without their guidance, without the person who's there to get them through these incredibly dark times they're going through and this insane amount of burden that is laid upon them. So yeah, this, this film is Fellowship. And yeah, that's, um, that's the, uh, that's the end of this first part and we will be back next week for the two towers, uh, of, uh, Deathly Hallows part one. Before we go, Gentlemen, uh, pimp your shows. Well, you can uh, find me every uh, Wednesday on uh, PATV with extra credits. I just do the voice and I help to kind of write and edit it and all that. Uh, we talk about games and such. You can find me at GameBurst. It's gameburst.co.uk. We're a twice-weekly gaming podcast. We do news every Sunday and then every Thursday is a roundtable or a replay show or a quiz or some other such entertainment. And you can find my scribblings on Gonzo Planet. You've been listening to the Digital Gonzo Harry Potter podcasts. I've been Alex Shaw, and I never realised how beautiful this place was.